I, I'm not naming names, except it was me. But there, we came home from a trip to Disney World this year, and there was a there was a fruit fly situation. Oh <laughs> no! Two to no. some. It wasn't bad. It was not a. I mean, it was not a, a terrible fruit fly infestation. But it was, and it was. <laughs> this is most definitely my fault. <laughs> That's, we have uh, we have people come and feed the cat, so there are at least some people doing basic check on whether there's something disastrous happening in the house right. when they come in to feed the cat. So that's that's good. That's like check on the house, feed the cat, and also make sure that there's nothing. Yeah, we didn't leave a banana on the counter right. or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's banana would be the worst. You'd have to move. <laughs> It's yeah. I don't know because the the banana skin is well. Yeah, no, you may be you may be right. There are other we've had other fruits that have rotted in in the fruit bowl at the bottom that were worse. Where I would walk in and and you know they're insidious because you like you don't really notice it if you're just in the house. But then somebody walks in from out in the world, <laughs> out in the fresh air, and goes, "Oh no! <laughs> like where right. is that coming from?" And that's when you discover that there's a there's a rotten nectarine at the bottom of fruit bowl. Yeah, it's um, not good. You know, you know. Uh, my wife found a good tip. It's one of those uh, like, like you don't have to buy anything. It's like you use stuff in your own household to to solve the problem. What was there's like a woman who had like a, a whole bunch of those tips, oh, like hints from Heloise. Yeah, hints from Heloise. Right, exactly. I remember as a kid, I didn't know how to pronounce her name. Uh, she was she was a Letterman guest, wasn't she? she yeah, was on I Letterman think she, a few times. I think I think she, I think she was. Uh, so I don't know if this actually comes from her, but it's one of those type of tips. But the way to get rid of one way to get rid of uh, fruit flies is to fill a wine glass or two with, and it, it the tip says white wine. I don't know if that makes a difference. I doubt it because, but it at least lets you see them. Um, and then you. You put a little bit, like a, maybe like an inch of white wine in the, 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 the glass. And then on the top, just drop gently about two drops of dish detergent. And then the fruit flies are attracted to the wine, but the dish detergent that floats on top is viscous enough that they can't escape. Yeah, and we, we and did they, that. Get, they get we, nice and drunk, so it's like you're killing them humanely. I think we did that with with vinegar, um, and we and like a like like a plastic bag where you clip the end of like a Ziploc bag and you put it down in the glass with the vinegar below it, and they go down and then they can't come back out. <laughs> so that's another like homemade uh, right. fl fruit fly trap. But we definitely have done that. <laughs> uh, anyway, we should get going. We only have we only have uh, limited time, and we have. Uh, Six as hours. much six, time as you want. Yeah, we have six hours of topics to pack into a two-hour show. We do, show. as usual. <laughs> uh, I, I, starting out, I, I'm going to get some follow-up out of the way. I, that's what you're supposed to All do right. follow-up, right? Uh, so a couple, I think so. I couple think of a couple episodes ago, I had molts on, and uh, and I I spoke about my long-standing analogy that I like to use for designing a good interface. And this is this could be for software, it could be even be for hardware products. But I like to think of it as like the difference between going feeling like you're going uphill or downhill. And like a bad interface for something makes you feel like it it's like you have to push uphill every step of the way and a good interface makes you feel like you're going downhill. And one of my favorite examples would be um like a Fantastical's interface for entering a, a new uh, date or event where you can just start typing free form in a field uh, podcast with Jason Thursday or Wednesday at 530 
and it'll just right. parse it and I'll have an event that's named podcast with Jason. It'll n- n- correctly interpret Wednesday as meaning the next Wednesday and 5.30 is 5.30 p.m. instead of a.m. because they're somehow smart enough to know that we're not going to podcast at 5.30 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, brilliant interface. Feels like you're going downhill. It feels like I couldn't, I can't imagine how it would be easier to create an event. Whereas going uphill would be um, like sitting there and having to pick from a date field, um, you know, and I'd bring up a calendar and pick the date and then enter the time manually and have to p- manually enter a.m. or p.m. and going through all these different fields. Anyway, I, I but I mentioned my frustration with that because with it, with my analogy, because going downhill also has sort of a negative connotation. If you say, oh, man, Daring Fireball is really going downhill lately, that, that, that most people would <laughs> interpret that as meaning it's, <laughs> it's not as good as it used to be. Um, so, uh, listener, Justin Scott on Twitter. Thank you, Justin. He suggested that I switch to, uh, downstream and upstream and, and then you swimming downstream, swimming upstream, and then you lose the, the, the second meaning where, where, uh, downhill has a negative connotation. So I'm going to keep that in mind. I've bookmarked it. I'm going to try to try to keep it in my brain cause I only bring it up about once a year, but I just wanted to thank him for his clever, uh, can't believe I didn't think of it. Uh, suggestion. It's good. You just got to think about boats more than like walking or riding yeah. a bike or something. Yep, exactly. That's all. Uh, secondarily, <laughs> on the last episode with Glenn Fleischman, uh, I, <laughs> I I went on an angry rant about the the Amber Alert system that that set your phone off, uh, and a couple of people wrote in to say that that was a little bit cruel or something and somebody pointed me i will put this in the show notes that the amberalert.gov website claims to have these statistics and they claim that 40 children have been rescued because of wireless emergency alerts i i, I don't know I, took, I started taking a look at their report they have reports but the reports only go up to 2015 so i don't know what's going on with 2016 uh uh I started reading it. I couldn't, it was just a gobbledygook. So I'll, I'll just accept it. I'll say, okay, I'll admit, you know, let's just say 40 kids have been saved who would have otherwise not been saved. So I, you know, go, uh, go Amber alerts. Oh, the other follow up on that is I heard that I, I, I posited that Apple was legally re- required to participate. And a couple people wrote in to say that, no, it's voluntary, but everybody does it. That's a bad look. If you like, no, no. We yeah. don't want to find find missing kids. No, right. you gotta. Right, I think that you gotta put that in there. It's sort of implicitly mandatory because it's it's sort of a bad PR, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, what else? We're on one last bit of follow up suggested by you. Now this is pure coincidence. Yes. Uh, last time you were on the show, which was quite a while ago, I think. Um, we were talking about old old fashioned keyboards, and you're you had a new. Uh, mechanical keyboard that you had ordered or two maybe mm-hmm. um and you pointed out i will put a link to this uh, i'm afraid i actually don't know how to pronounce his surname i believe it's stephen trofton smith maybe it's Trouton I, smith? I say trouton trouton yeah. smith i think yeah trouton sounds i guess sounds more british uh but very good friend of the show or, or friend of the website at least uh expert ios uh i call him like a spelunker like he digs into mm-hmm. these uh to the betas um Uncovered also sorts of juicy tidbits from that uh, uh, HomePod iOS release, premature release a couple weeks ago. Anyway, he had pre-ordered. He showed me this actually privately, at least the the plans for it. He pre-ordered. There's a there's a company. I forget the company. Is it Wazdi? 
I think it's WASD. Uh, I just say I just say WASD. Yeah. Do you have one of their keyboards? I don't. I've actually been thinking of getting one, and mm. then I saw Steve Trouton Smith's tweets, and oh boy, I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I'm gonna have to at some point because they so, they let you do custom keycaps, and right. that that is. Um, I so the one I've got is a weird um, Chinese keyboard that uh, I, that I like a lot, but um, it comes with the keys, the keycaps that are on it, and they're they're really generic Windows keycaps, and um, and with the advantage of the WSD is you can order it with custom uh, printing on whatever keycaps, like colors and printing, um, when you order a keyboard from them. Yeah, so uh, Trout and Smith made his uh, Apple Extended Keyboard 2 style, which is actually the style of a whole era of Apple keyboards. Uh, there was a pretty long era of Apple keyboards, pretty much uh, the entire, like probably starting around the late 80s and right up until the Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive uh, iMac. Yeah, like until that iMac keyboard. Yeah, I think so. Uh, where all of Apple's keyboards used, um, I actually forget the exact thickness and weight, but it's a, a universe condensed, a version of universe condensed slanted or italic. I forget if they call it italic or slanted, but the, the font universe, uh, very distinctive. Um, and it, it does look beautiful. So he, he made a custom key, keyboard uh, layout. Uh, I think he took somebody else's and then tweaked it uh, and got a, a keyboard that truly does look... I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, the colors are a little... I, probably not what Apple would use, but in, in many ways, it looks like a modern version of an Apple extended keyboard, too. Yeah, he did a good job. WASD lets you um, use like Illustrator, or there's also like a free open source app that you can download right. that lets you set these template files up, and so you can put in kind of any font and any symbol you want. And um, if you're a Mac user, you kind of they've got some. They've got like a pre-formatted Apple layout, but it's not great. That's one of the things that's prevented me from from buying from them is that I'm concerned that if I'm going to use their 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 service of customizing keys. I want it to be right, and then I start to dive in. and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is going to be a whole project, like Steve Trouton Smith found out. It's a whole serious project. Even if you search the web and find somebody who's done uh, a particular layout that you can use and then adapt, but uh, it looks great. Um, I wish WSD let you uh, choose the body of the keyboard, but all their keyboards are black, and I think by default with black keys, and so. Steve's keyboard is black body mm. with gray keys, which is not not ideal, but um, it looks great and the layout looks great. And it definitely, I'm not sure I would do custom keycaps harkening back to this era. Um, I might do something a little more modern, but still, still Apple-like. But it is, yep. uh, it, it can't glance at those keys and not feel like you're in the early 90s. My bit of feedback to him, and I don't even know if WASD lets you do it, but I think you could do it yourself if you're, I, there might there must be some way you could do it yourself if, by popping the keys off and on, but one of the changes that Apple made at some point um, was they changed the little home row alignment nubbins. I don't know what if there's like a keyboard engineering name for them, but everybody familiar with a modern keyboard thinks of them as the things on the F and J key that your index fingers feel, and it's to help you know that you're on the right row. Um, right. But back in that era, in the in the Apple Extended Keyboard 2 era, Apple, and I think dating back as as long as I can remember as a kid, all the way back through the, the big clacky clacky Apple 2s, Apple used to put them on the D and K keys for your middle finger. And yeah. 
I, I, for me, as somebody who still uses an Apple extended keyboard on my or keyboard two, uh, to be precise, on my iMac, I have I, I actually prefer it. I prefer the middle finger rather than the index finger. And so I hey, feel like Travis Smith should have done Of course that. you do. You're from Philly. <laughs> of course you prefer the middle finger. But uh, they... WSD lets you customize like everything. Like you can okay. you can get you can order a key from them in a particular color. So I'm sure that if he wanted to or if somebody else wanted to, they could order that nubbin key with the other letter printed on it. And then it, you just pop them off. I mean, they, they they can sell you a little tool that helps, but you just pop off the key and put on a new key. I did whole uh, a whole custom key layout thing for my stupid uh, keyboard that I use the same same deal from and I use WSD's keys cuz they they are the ones that will they'll print anything on a on a key <laughs> uh, uh anyway great work uh great company I guess I should put a link to uh WASD WASD keyboards in there too uh so w- what company was your keyboard from Oh, the, it's called. Uh, I got from Josh Chapolsky. He was he was pointing out these things. It's a Leopold is the name of it, oh, and I've it's a it. yeah, it's ten keyless or it, it's a, maybe a sixty percent. Basically, it doesn't have a function key row and it doesn't have a number pad. And I really love it because it's small, and and that means that my trackpad is right next to it. Um, but it is weird because it's got a non-standard space bar, which means that I can't like buy keycap sets and swap out the space bar. It, it just I would have to like start using like super glue and rubber cement and weird stuff, and and I'm never going to do that. So it is uh, it's pretty good, and I I'm using Cherry um, MX Brown mechanical switches. The first one I got was blue and they were it was super clicky and this one's a little more kind of clacky i know that doesn't make any sense but it is like that was clicky and this is clacky and i like the clacky better um so now i know like i figured out which switch i liked so now if i order a wasd keyboard i'll be like give me the cherry brown because that's the switch that i have that i like and i wouldn't miss or i would i would be okay with getting a function key row back because i i've got keyboard shortcuts mapped but it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world i just don't want it to be any wider because the further the more wide the keyboard is um the further away my pointing device is and then i'm stretching with my with my right hand to get to it and it gives me some wrist pain i'm much more comfortable with everything as close together as possible part of it part of this reminds me of and i do and and there's a part of me that's a nerd who loves to configure everything um i do love that i love getting a being able to design everything like uh the the ray-ban website lets you design your own sunglasses and so I could pick exactly, you know, at the, the frames that I like, I could get them, I can pick uh, like gold chrome, silver chrome, or brushed chrome. Uh, you could pick like which lens color you want for the sunglasses. And because they're like the ones I like are like aviator style. You can even pick what color the bit of plastic that goes behind your ears is. I love that. So, and, and I really, yeah. you know, I feel like I got mine just right. Um and so I appreciate that, but this choice between like cherry red and cherry brown and and et cetera, and the fact that that at each one there's like different types there's like a, a there's like another color that's exactly like one of the other ones, but just has like less uh takes less pressure to push but has like the yep. same the same exact thing at the bottom. Uh, like the thing at the bottom is the thing that makes them most different from each other. Like the, I forget what the word is, but it's like the way that it actually clicks, but then how much pressure it takes is sort of a secondary choice. And, and I'm overwhelmed by it because I, 
I find, I think I like the cherry red, but I, maybe cherry brown. I, I, I don't know. And so I find that choice paralyzing. And I appreciate the fact that with an Apple extended keyboard too, you just, you just got the ones that Apple liked best. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, if you, and if you didn't like it, maybe you get a different keyboard that the, like the IBM keyboards were totally different. And that's like Rich Siegel loves the IBM keyboard, I believe. Right. And it feels completely different. But back then it was, now it's an enthusiast thing where it's like, right. we make one keyboard and then you choose the switches and, but that, and they're emulating like this brand of keyboard or that brand of keyboard. Right. I bought the tester actually, after we talked, people pointed out in the last, the last uh, episode we that I was on, uh, that you can get a little tester, which is like a little block. And I did it. And and it, it led me to the the cherry brown, which I I'm happy about. But it's not the same. Like it's not the same to have a little tester where you're clicking a key, trying to imagine how it's different from the key next to it, versus actually like typing on a keyboard. It's not. It, you know, it, it's right. as it's better than nothing. But short of buying six keyboards, which is totally insane, short of doing that, um, you're, you're never going to really know for sure. Right. It gives you the tester. The tester is actually a fun little fidget toy. And I know that in oh, in the yeah. intervening months <laughs> since you were last on, fidget toys have become like a phenomenon. Uh, it is a very fun little, I like to have it at my desk. Uh, but I, it's exactly right. It's, it's like pressing one key. It can give you a basic sense of, oh, no, no, I, 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 that is definitely not that one. But it, when you get to two that are kind of close, there's no way that either one gives you the feeling of what it's like to just write an article using a keyboard right. full of the exact same switch. And to further compound the decisions you have to make, they also ship two kinds of little uh, like gaskets that you can optionally add to any of mm -hmm. these. <laughs> so, yep. so there's like four levels of choice. It's which, um, which bottom out style do you want? Do you want the lighter touch or harder touch? And do you want no gasket, a red gasket or a blue gasket? And I think the yep. gaskets are sort of like quieters, like dampeners. Yeah, that's sort of, exactly it. You know, uh, and so you could that there's a that's a choice the the gaskets you can change on your own but it's like you know it's, it's a lot you know what is it 110 keys or something like that or 101 keys on a lot of these layouts yeah. so it's, it's it's a lot of it takes a while <laughs> you can order them with the gaskets on but you can also do it yourself and and it it takes a while I've done that it takes a while no it, it shows you the advantage of. Uh, bringing this to a broader uh, a broader version of the same topic the advantage of what apple does where you know when you buy an apple product you are kind of putting yourself in their hands and saying I want you to make the right decision for me here. And Apple is not a company that generally says, well, you can get it in these 10 different things, right? right. They 10 different SKUs. You get it, the one that we think is the, is the one that most people are going to like, and it's the best one. And that frustrates some people. Going to this keyboard thing, it is the exact opposite of that. It's like you have so much choice, and there's there nobody's motivated to say, no, 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 this is the best one, because right. everybody's got a different opinion, and they want to give you all the choice, but you become paralyzed. And this is why I I haven't bought one of those WASD keyboards is I I have to choose even now that I've settled on the the switch color which took me a while there are all of these other issues and then there's like the keyboard layout thing on top of that it's like <laughs> so much choice and and with Apple it's like no we sell a keyboard it's this one you know like it or lump it but this is the only one we make so this is the <laughs> one you're getting there is something to that uh, the closest I can think Apple has come to that would be last year with the iPhone 7 I, I found it excruciating to decide between the flat black and the jet black, <laughs> right? I, it's That's like true. Off, it, it offering 
two blacks is very unapple-like. Yeah, it, it's like they couldn't it, they couldn't decide which one. Like there was an internal struggle about about the two, and so they're like, "Fine, whatever, we'll ship them both and see what happens." Um, I wonder what happened. I'd be interested too. I would be fascinated, and it's the sort of thing that oh my God, I don't know. I, I bet so few people within the company really know. I mean, I think like anecdotally, you could talk to like a retail. It, you know, employee, and they could say, you know, somebody who sells phones in an Apple store on a daily basis probably might have a good sense of which one is is more frequent. Uh, but who knows how that how that lines up worldwide? You know, that there might be regional differences or something like that. But I think that you, you're. Exa- I think you must be exactly right that internally they couldn't decide, and that that's the reason why someone whose tastes so largely align with Apple's institutionally, like me, would have found it so hard to decide between the two. I've always thought it's so hard. Like it, it, one of the nice things of being a huge, you know, being a diehard Mac user. And I've always said this is one of my, you know, I'm way, you know, what I'm, what I love is Mac OS and using the Mac software. And I would, if I had to choose between like a, a, a ThinkPad running Mac OS or a MacBook Pro running Windows or any other system that could run, I would choose the PC hardware running Mac OS with, without even a moment's hesitation. But before you even finish the question, I would buzz in on my Jeopardy thing and say, give me that one. Um, so I always consider myself so fortunate as somebody who really also does care about the hardware that I'm not like, I don't feel that way about windows. If I felt that strongly as a pro windows user, I would find buying a new laptop excruciating. (laughs) It would, it would take me months. And I could, by the time I made up my decision and probably all be outdated, I would find it so hard to decide because I might have a vague idea that I want something roughly 13 inch diagonal, you know, and I want, you know, high end specs. Um, but you're, it's, you've got so many options that are roughly equivalent to each other. So I think I, this is one of the core reasons why people misunderstand Apple when they write about Apple or even just uh, people who don't use Apple products and misunderstand why people like them is this, which is it's not a because they'll, they'll say, but there are so many other choices. It's like, yeah, but there is something to be said for somebody with good taste, you know, and you are relying on the taste of that entity to make those decisions for you and say, we've looked at it and this is really the one that you want. And that's what we're selling you. And, you know, some people for some people that's not the way they want to live their life and that's great but uh there's a there's a just huge amount of power in being able to just sort of say um you have three choices we made all the other choices for you pick these through from these three and walk away and that's it uh totally agree all right so ends our follow-up section and uh i'll take this break and i will thank our first friend of the show it's our good friends at squarespace make your next move and make your next website do it at squarespace uh Listen, Squarespace sponsors this show all the time. Uh, they're possibly, I, I think, quite probably the most frequent sponsor of the talk show in its history. Uh, so you've heard me talk about them before if you've listened to the show on any regular basis. Just file this away in the back of your brain. The next time you have a project that you need to create a new website for, try it at Squarespace first. I'm telling you, I, I know in the back of my head, 
that I would be, I would think, eh, I don't know, something where you actually just drag and drop on the website, it's on a web page itself to make your website. How's that, that going to be? I'm telling you right now, there are so many websites that you use on a daily basis that are Squarespace sites, and you'd never know it because the design flexibility and the number of options you have it, it, it is as infinite as if you really were sitting there in BB Edit with a brand new empty HTML document and the world's your oyster. Any and everything you could possibly want to design, you can design. And and the thing that would be that would gnaw in the back of my head before I tried it is I would think, ah, I'll bet it's like when you created a blogger site 10, 15 years ago and you had like three templates to choose from and everybody's blogger site looked like one of these three things. It's not like that at all. Squarespace sites are can be branded right down to the pixel uh, from corner to corner. Um, I'm telling you right now, I think I mentioned it the last time I sponsored the show. If you view source on Pixar.com, Pixar.com is, has the Squarespace stuff in their metadata. They're, they're using Squarespace for at least part of their site. It, it, it really is that powerful where you would want to use it with infinite resources. But if you don't have infinite resources, if you're just somebody who's like making a website for a friend... It, do it with Squarespace and you can turn the whole thing over to your completely non-technical friend and they'll be able to take it from there. It'll, it'll just, it, it'll get it, get them off your back and you'll be done with it. Um, really, it's just highly recommended. I'm telling you to check them out the next time you need a website or someone you know needs a website and they come to you for advice. Uh, go check them out. Uh, go to squarespace.com slash Gruber and you use that code Gruber and you get 10% off your first order. My thanks to Squarespace. What do you like better, Jason? You like you like doing the podcast reads, or like being being the uh, the the non reader? Oh, I, you know, I I can do either one. I'm okay. The one that drives me crazy is when it's a podcast read that I also do, because then I like I can see the text in front of me, and those are the ones where I, I will chuckle as uh, like Marco, let's say, will be reading a, an ad, and I'll I'll notice the the ways that he does it better, and the ways that I think I do it better, and like which things he omits or rewords versus what I do. That's kind of fun when that happens. But otherwise, <laughs> I don't really mind since I do I do both. Right, I'm on podcasts like um, when I do upgrade with Mike, he does most of the spots, but I do other podcasts where I read the ad right. spots, and so I'm 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 okay either way. The pressure's off when you don't have to read the spot. That right. that is nice. Uh, uh, that's Mike's you and Mike show is exactly what I was thinking. Cause I know Mike does them. Uh, and I know that on a whole bunch of other ones, uh, you know, of your 20 <laughs> podcasts that you do. Them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I used to, I used to find, I've said this before. I used to find it excruciating when I first started doing a show on my own. I, Cause I knew I was bad at it and I just, but it, you know, it's, it's like anything. If you, you know, work at it, you can get better. And I find yeah, it's, and just, it's turned into the most energetic part of the show for me. Cause every time I do one, I just try to get fired up and I think, what can I, what can I do to make this interesting? Yeah. I think that's the, that's the lesson that I took from it. Um, back in the early days when I started doing ad spots, when I was, uh, when the incomparable was on five by five and I would listen to the way Dan Benjamin did those spots. And I, and, and I really was legitimately like, um, oh, I see. <laughs> that's no. that's you're supposed to bring energy and enthusiasm to these ad reads. Got it, right? And that was a really good thing um, thing to follow. And I've I've tried to get better and improve that and and bring that energy to it. And and uh, you know it's it could always be better, but it's something that you know those of us who came from uh, the side of being a writer, it's a lot of times you're actually meant to keep some remove from that stuff. And so then to read the ad is like, I need to get in a different frame of mind to do this because this is not my usual low key 
somewhat cynical kind of frame right. of mind. I'm reading, I'm reading in the ad spot. So I, I yeah, I think uh, every now and then Mike hands me one on upgrade just because it's a service that's not available in, in the UK <laughs> and I need to talk about it. And those are fun to do too. All right. Most important issue of the week by far and away is, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 Google announced that Android, uh, whatever version number they're up to, um, I don't I actually don't even know, uh, but they're doing the thing with Android where they give each version a, a, a candy slash snack name, sort of like, so everybody knows it by the name rather than the number, um, um, sort of like Mac OS releases where people know Sierra and high Sierra and start blurring in together in your brain, whether it, which one's 12, 10.12 and whatever. Anyway, the new version that's coming out imminently soon is called Android Oreo. And I, <laughs> I wrote on tearing fireball that, uh, about my love. For, I took it as an opportunity and I mean this sincerely. I really, really wasn't. I think people took it as me throwing shade at them. Um, but I really wasn't, but I, I, I liked Oreos growing up, but Back in college, sure. I think even in the late nineties, I discovered Numinos from Paul Newman's snack company. Um, and, uh, I wrote, I, I, there's so much better to me. It, it's unbelievable. And, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced. I am quite convinced. I would bet money that I could take a Pepsi challenge and taste test a Numino versus Oreo. Um, they definitely taste different in my opinion. And I think that a Numino tastes more like a real cookie. When if you look at the ingredients, it's made with just like flour and sugar and, and stuff like that. And there's no high fructose corn syrup. And Oreos to me taste a little bit, especially the aftertaste, it tastes a little bit like you ate some sunscreen. Yeah, a little more engineered. I, I agree. The In my house, the great debate uh, currently is that my wife thinks double stuff Oreos are an abomination. And my children um, think the more of that filling, whatever it is and wherever yeah. it comes from, the better. I'm on, kind of on the fence about that. I agree with you about Numinos being good. I actually really um, fell in love with the Ginger O's, which are a Numen O, but it's mm. just like a ginger cookie yes. instead. And yes. they're so good. They're yes. so good. I've had those and they are very good. Um, yeah. I I had, I mean, it's, it's, it's the way the taste buds evolve from childhood through adulthood is you know you have a you take you enjoy sweeter things you this is the reason why kids love candy they when you're younger your taste mm-hmm. buds are geared towards it and it's why kids typically don't <laughs> drink like black coffee is bitter things are not as don't taste as well when you're a yeah. little kid uh when i was a, like a teenager like early like ju- like late junior high man i i just ate i probably ate half my weight in candy every day and, and like just like the willy wonka gobstoppers and Wow. Oh man, nerds! Remember nerds? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh man, and that's just—I mean, that's just like super concentrated sugar. I mean, and I don't know what the hell is nerds, but it's—it's it's just like uh, lemon lime flavored sugar. Uh, I yeah. love that stuff. So back then, I did love double stuff Oreos because it was just more of the sweet stuff. Um, I, I would tend to agree with your wife now, though, that it's sort of an abomination. It's way yeah, out of way. It's definitely it's, out of whack. Yeah, I get. I get why kids liked it right that that makes makes sense but but yeah it's it's you want to keep it in balance but yeah as an adult your palate is totally different whenever halloween comes around we have that same thing where i have like one or two of those candies and it's sort of like wow that is so much sugar but you know my kids are happy to just keep on eating that sugar so it works for them you you know try one of those sour candies or something like that and it's like holy shit i'm not going to taste anything for a week and meanwhile Mm -hmm. like my son is popping them one after another (laughs) 
No, my tongue starts to hurt after a, a couple of those candies where it's just like, it's no. not, no, no, it's not going to uh, work. Um, but anyway, my, my, I bring it up because I, I really do mean this sincerely. And I know exactly what you're, if you're out there and you hear alternate Oreo and you think, ah, they suck. Uh, like the Hydrox. I always thought Hydrox were terrible growing up. I forget there was mm-hmm. a brand, uh, I think it might've been regional to southeastern Pennsylvania. Lance, I think, was the name of the company. Um, and like our, our our high school sold sold these cookies. They were, you know, Oreo, exactly like Oreos, you know, black cookies sandwiching a layer of white sugar cream or whatever that stuff is. And they were awful. I mean, they just tasted like the Oreos you'd get in prison or something like that, or, you know, the ones they had in the Soviet Union. I mean, they just tasted mm-hmm. like cardboard. Um and so I know what you if you have like a bias in your head that anything like an Oreo, but that's not an Oreo, is terrible. I implore you to buy one package of Numinos. I implore it. Find them, you know, at like Whole Foods or or somewhere like that. Or get, you, I'm sure you can get them on Amazon. Just just try one thing of Numinos. I'm telling you, it's the the whole Numen product line is actually great. I think they make good pretzels. They it's it's really high quality stuff. Um, it really is like a. a uh, um, a better quality Oreo. Not. I not, think the story with the Newman. There was. A, I read a story about the, the whole Newman's own, uh, business, and I believe the way that a lot of this works is because they sell in lower volume for higher prices. What they, they, uh, you know kind of let the food manufacturing, they subcontract out all the right. food manufacturing, right? It's just like Trader right. Joe's does and your right. local grocery store does. But it lets them set their standards a little bit differently. And so you get something where as an Oreo may be just engineered to have a certain amount of flavor for to make the kids happy and also cost so that they've got their profit uh, margins where they want them. Uh, the Newman's label, you know, it's a little bit different. And and that's because it doesn't get sold in every single store in mass quantities. And it actually reminded me of the um, our argument about like the high-end iPhone, the same thing where it's like, you know, Apple sells so many iPhones now that to a certain point, they need any feature, any piece of electronics they put in an iPhone, they need to mass produce because they sell m- tens of millions of iPhones in a year. Um, and that's kind of like an Oreo. <laughs> and the Numinos are like... Uh, I'm not going to say it's like Andy Rubin's essential phone, but it's a little like that. It's like lower volume. They can yeah. they can afford to be different and charge a different price and not have to worry about it. And and I think that's a clever thing. It may even in fact even be made in the same factory where they make Oreos. I don't know. They don't say right. right they can't right. tell you that. Right. But um. But with a different mixture of uh, ingredients that lets them have a different product. Um. I- have you ever seen there's a a website that is devoted to uh backwards engineering where Trader Joe's stuff actually is from? Trader Joe's stuff <laughs> Trader Joe's I think some of their stuff is exactly what you're saying where they just contract somebody to make it, but a lot of their stuff is just rebadged identical stuff. Yeah. Um and so for example, the one that is the most painfully obvious is their crinkle cut salt and pepper chips, which are excellent, excellent potato chips, are clearly kettle brand salt and pepper right. crinkle cut chips. Exactly the same. There are, there, it's sort of a very distinctive chip. <laughs> it's super thick. It's kind of greasy, but really, really good. And it is literally exactly the same. And they used to sell kettle chips right there in the store. And uh, there's a whole website. There's a website though that's devoted to sort of backwards engineering exactly what everything in Trader Joe's actually is. Huh. Yeah, because it comes from all over the place. But it's good. It's mostly good. We go to Trader Joe's all the time. 
because there's, there's good stuff. You learn over time which ones are the good ones and which ones yeah. are the bad ones. I like Trader Joe's a lot. We do. We, we have one pretty nearby, and I feel like I don't go there enough. I, I, every time I go there, I think I should come here more often because I actually enjoy going there. And just by coincidence, it's like their free samples way more often appeal to me. And like, yes, I would like to try a little bit of that uh, than most stores. Most stores, it always seems oh. to me like they're offering you some pretty weird stuff, uh, you know, on the free samples. We we went into a Walmart on this uh, on this road trip we took, and um, for I guess good reason. Like we, but I, we don't have Walmart around here um, anywhere near where we live. It's uh, you know, it's, I don't know, 30 miles away or something. Right. There's a Walmart. And I'd never even been to one until I was visiting my uh, my mom in Arizona. And they that that's like one of the places, one of the few places they can go where they're out in the desert there to shop. And um, so we go to one on this road trip. And it was it was kind of a nightmare. We're looking for groceries. We're looking for snacks. We're looking for stuff. And it was, it was a little bit like sort of like the opposite of Trader Joe's. Like they only had the most... Um, marketed and mass available products. And so we're like looking for a very particular cut. We're looking for like sun chips. And this Walmart was like, nope, <laughs> we don't have those here. It's like, what are you? Because they got, it's like Walmart. They only had like Walmart brand and some Doritos. And it was weird, a huge rack, but the brands were all over the place. And I, I kept thinking, this is what I always read about, about Walmart, which is that they have, they're ruthless when it comes to uh, what products they stock and what suppliers they use. And uh, just walking into this one Walmart in Utah, it definitely, I could tell, like there was some stuff that was there and the other stuff's like, nope, we, we decided not to carry that. And Walmart is powerful enough to just decree that stuff. It was weird. Right. I, uh, yeah, it's a weird store. Retail right. is fascinating. All right. The actual biggest topic, or I don't know if we're going to spend a lot of time on it, but the, the, the big thing, and the reason I specifically, why well, I thought of asking you to be on this show is that uh, last week I, I commemorated the 15th anniversary of Daring Fireball, of which I consider this podcast to be a, a part. Um. And I, oh my God, did I get email after that from so many readers. I, I lost count. And I thank all of you for sending it. I read every single one of them and replied to like two. Um, because I, if I replied to them all, I'd, I wouldn't even have time to do the show. But I thank you. Um, and I really, I, I, I have to say, like, I, I don't know, you, you might have noticed because you're a close reader, but like when Daring Fireball turned 10, I didn't say anything and I didn't do five. This is the first time I've ever mentioned an anniversary. Um, and I certainly don't do it every year, but I didn't do it at 10 either. Um, and my thinking changed between 10 and 15, where at 10, I just, I, like, for example, the other thing too is to the best of my knowledge, Daring Fireball has never won a single award. And I, I just don't... I, I, I don't like that. I just, uh, this is antithetical to me. I, I don't like it. Uh, and, and to me, celebrating like anniversaries feels like, I don't know, like awarding myself an award or something. There's, there's part of my nature that is to find self-congratulatory stuff to be, um, I, I don't know. I don't like it. Um, yeah. But so I, time, think it's, I think that's good. I think it's healthy to be a little uncomfortable about about celebrating your own accomplishments and letting other people do it. But uh, this year I thought, you know what? I'll bet readers would be happy to know. And and so why the fuck not? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I wrote about it. But then I thought, you know, and, and my, it was actually from my friend Jim Kudal, who I don't even think it was this year. I think it was like last year. But Jim and I were hanging out um, 
somewhere. It was probably in Vegas and just, it, it just idly. And this is the type of thing that like occurs to, to Jim is he just said, do you ever just like do like a word count and figure out how many words you've written on, on Daring Fireball? And I said, no. Uh, and he said, you should do that. Cause I'll bet that's an amazing number. And so, uh, as an excuse <laughs> to actually point out the fact that Daring Fireball had turned 14, I did it. Um, and I counted separately my original words uh, and separately words that are block quotes. You know, in other words, things from other people's articles that I quote, you know, which anybody who reads Daring Fireball knows exactly what I'm talking about. I block quote things all the time. Um, what was the full tally here? So combined between my full articles and link list entries, I've written two million. And it's just so funny that it's this close to being over. It's two million as, as of last Friday, 2,000,516 original words and uh 3,100,000 and change total words, including block quotes, which is a lot of words. And that your full, your full columns is just over a million. The, yes. the full piece is at, right. at 1,048,000. I did the math on this because I was, those are amazing numbers. And then I was like, okay, what does that mean? What's the average during fireball week? And I looked it up, and it's like 2,500 words a week, every week, for 15 years, gives you your combined total. And of that, about 1,300, 1,400 is full column. So that may be one or two kind of column-length pieces a week. It's really one big column, but it probably over time right. it was, you know, two or three shorter pieces more often than not. And then you throw in an extra 1,000 words of linkless commentary, and that's your average week. It's not it, – it is it – is, a huge accomplishment on one level. And on another level, it shows you that it's really the accomplishment is being consistent at doing a good job, not an unreasonable, like writing 2,500 words a week, it's not unreasonable at all. No. But to do it every week for 15 years is not something that uh, most people do. No, it's just, a, it's a tribute mostly to uh, just keeping, just keep putting one foot in front of another. And then, um, yeah. well, that's, you know, do it for 15 years and so you can many go things. far distance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's totally it. I seem to recall reading years ago that a New York Times op-ed columnist, like their regular columnist, like Paul Krugman and uh, Maurice Amarine Dowd, their columns are either 700 or 750 words, more or less. And there's a little bit of play that they can do layout-wise, you know, with a block quote or something to stretch or to expand, but roughly 700, 750 words. And I think that they all, I think most of them do two a week. So that's about the same. It's, you know, yep. uh, you know roughly 1,300, 1,400 words of regular columns a week is roughly the output of being like a an op-ed columnist, which feels, you know, like it's about right. Um my um my one pager in Macworld all those years was about eight hundred words, seven hundred and eighty, seven hundred and sixty. But yeah. um, I always shot for eight hundred. And I remember, I remember thinking, David Pogue back when he did the back page column in Macworld, you know, we he he would write eight. Sometimes we would jump him to a a, a column in the I back. But so like eight eight hundred backward, which was terrible. Um, it, like between eight hundred and a thousand words, and he did that twelve times a year. And I remember marveling at that and thinking. Wow, how does he come up with 12 column ideas every year? <laughs> and you know, today I I have I write 800 words a week for Macworld and then I write six color stuff and it's like 52 column ideas a year. How is that even possible? But you you find a way. But yeah. that does seem like a natural like 800 words. I think I think that's why I shoot with my Macworld columns now too, even today. It's like that's not bad. That's like a a thought, a pretty mm. clear supported thought and then you're out. 
I feel like I'm so lucky that I've spent my entire writing career. Well, I used to write print in college for print newspaper. Um, and that was sort of constrained to the sort of, a you know, couldn't go too long, couldn't be too short. Um, it, it, and so I have, I have done it both ways, I guess I should say. And I've written for Ma I've written for the back page of Mac world and had that sort of, you know, and again, there was always a little bit of play. It wasn't that precise. There was a little bit, you know, some kind of a pull quote or something and you could stretch it yeah. or shrink it a little bit. Um, uh, you know, but the, the basic minimum and maximum were pretty narrow and it's harder. It's absolutely harder. So I do marvel at like a Paul Krugman who, you know, two times a week, 48 weeks a year, at least, uh, hits this exact narrow time frame because so much of what I write is either way longer than that or way shorter. And sure. it's, and I, I, you know, I love not having to stretch uh, a smaller idea into bigger. I hate, I always hated it. And even worse, I always hated having good sentences cut out of a long piece just because it wouldn't fit. Like that seems first crazy in hindsight did, now. <laughs> first thing I ever did as an editor, my first day on the job at Mac user back in 90 four, something like that, was, oh, the regular letters column editor is out and she's your boss. So you 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 need to cut this. It's 70 lines over. And literally, I had a printout of the letter section of, of Mac user and had to sit there with a pencil lining out like words to pull up a line or right. sentences. And that was in, in print. I mean, that is still how it's done for those who are still doing print. And yeah, it can be brutal. It can also be kind of a, a great a great lesson, like those pieces you wrote for Macworld. I I think I most of when you were writing those, I think I was probably the editor on those, and and it was very much like that of like, can I change one word to be a little bit shorter yeah. here, and then that'll pull up a line because you were three lines over or something like that. And the best is when you do that and send the PDF back to the writer, you in this case, and and say, can you check this out? And if it doesn't look like anything changed. That's that's the best, right. but um, you know, because so, in the end, you don't want to change the meaning. You just want to pull up those um, those widows uh, that you know that are dangling over into another line. You want to pull three of those up so that you can get it the whole column on that one right. on that one piece of paper. Which is it's a fun constraint, but I agree with you. It is so much better when you know you have one thing to say and it's only going to be two paragraphs to just say it and right. move on instead of like what how can I take three things that are each worth 200 words and put them together somehow and make 800 words out of it, which is it's no good that way, but if you're working in in print, you you know, everything has to be 800 words long or whatever your constraint is. I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again, but we're, my first regular writing for the public was at, at the student newspaper at Drexel, the triangle. And I, I, my sophomore year, I started submitting, um, you know, op-ed columns, you know, where I tried to do sort of a, uh, Dave Barry-ish sort of comical look, tried to be funny in op-ed columns, uh, as opposed to, which I thought was so maddening as most of the shit on the Drexel on the triangle op-ed page was like, people writing, trying to write serious shit about Bill Clinton and, and stuff like that. And it's like, why the fuck would you want to read that in a student newspaper? It's like, oh, I thought I cracked jokes about the shitty stuff going on at, at this university. Um, and I also had this thought that my God, I can do better than these people. <laughs> and the way you, of course, now this is 93, I guess when I started, right. Or 92, it would have been 90, 1992. The way you submitted a column is you, uh, uh, I think it had to be in MacWrite format. And then I think later it was either MacWrite or, or they expanded to MacWrite uh, Claris. What was the Claris uh, suite called? 
Was it ClarisWorks? ClarisWorks, the ClarisWorks word processing suite, which maddeningly was made by the same people as MacWrite, but was a different document format or Microsoft Word. Um, and you'd just bring it in on a floppy disk, and they'd put the floppy disk in and copy it over and, and tell you they'd get back to you, you know, see if it if, if it got in. Uh, I don't even remember how they got back to me because in, in 1992, like I had email because I was majoring in computer science, but like I don't think school-wide there was email yet or if there was, I don't know. So somehow they got back to me and said, okay, we're running it. And I was very, very proud. And I think like my third column, the third one I submitted um, when it came out. And then of course I read it, you know, word for every time it would, you know, those early ones, I'd read every single one in print. And it was amazing because there's my writing and my name right there on a real freaking newspaper. And like halfway through one of my one of my sentences got rewritten and I thought it turned what was previously a very clever, funny sentence into one that was, wasn't even funny at all. And I was like, what the hell did I, what, you know, did I make a, gra- a grammatical error? Like I, if I did, I would be damned if I knew what it was. And so when I submitted my next one, the guy who was the op-ed editor said, I remember his name, Francis Wisniewski, very nice guy. Uh, uh, and I said, I asked him, I said, Hey, by the way, this last one I had right here, and I said, I originally wrote whatever the sentence was, and you changed it to this. What what did I do wrong? And he goes, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. I just needed to move it up a line. <laughs> like the column was one line too long. Mm-hmm. So he edited that sentence to make it shorter enough that the whole column gained one line. And as soon as he said that, I thought, I need to become the op-ed editor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Well, because that's his... His failure was that he blew your joke in changing the line count, right? Right, because a good editor would would keep the joke and and find another way to make it work, right? And uh, and Francis, I did not steal his job. uh, He was not. It wasn't like his aspiration. And in fact, I think he really, really wanted to be was like the business manager, and he went on to do that and do a very good job. So it wasn't like I stole his job. And as you might expect, semester to semester, there's a lot of turnover at a student newspaper. but I literally, I, I took the job as op-ed editor so that I could, and then taught myself, you know, learned there at the newspaper graphic design and Quirk Express and everything. But I did it spe- specifically so that my columns would, uh, A, never never get mangled like that. And then B, ought to be honest, to, to always give them the best spot on the page. <laughs> sure, of course. That's and your prerogative, quite here frankly. We, here we are, twenty twenty, geez, twenty some years later, and my column still I'm gets looking, the best spot. <laughs> I, I'm looking, by the way, at something. This is fourteen years ago. I'm not sure if this is the first thing you wrote for me, but one of the things in the early days of, of Daring Fireball that I wanted to mention is I have a distinct memory that we had you write some how-to articles about BB Edit. Oh, I, I found remember one that. of them that's still on the web about version control in BB Edit. It's 2,000 words, how-to article. But I think you wrote a few. Yes, I uh, do. At, le- I... at least, because I, I remember you saying to me at some point, it may have been in this in this 2003 era um, where we were having you write some freelance stuff for us, where you said, I made more money on the on what I wrote for Macworld last year than I did for Daring Fireball. And literally, you wrote like three articles for me. Yeah. <laughs> but those were the early days when you were just getting started with Daring Fireball. And, and that was... Um, it was funny because it was really literally like I saw your work on the web and we're like, oh, there's a guy who can write. I wonder if he could write some stuff for us. And I know you had worked on 
on BB Edit stuff before, and so you knew that. And so in those early days, um, we threw some some how-to stuff your way, and then eventually you also you did those back page columns for a yeah. while, including that one. You got to that's got to kill you though. The, the how Apple rolls thing, like that's that's like one of the more famous things that that people quote all the time, and you have to link to it on MacWorld every time because it's on. I, I think you could reprint that. I bet yeah, you have I the think, rights to reprint that now. I, I was just going to tell you, I, I actually had plans. <laughs> I was just going to reprint it and wait wait I for it. I, I, I think, think you I have the rights. I, I think the way that the writer's contract, there was, uh, we, we re- redid our writer's contract at some point and it was, it was two uh, freelance editors or freelance writers who really pushed back on some of the details of it, including the, uh, Bruce Fraser, who was an expert on, in uh, publishing and pre-press and color and color management. Great guy, passed away a few years ago. And he made like 20 changes to the writer's contract. But one of the things that came out of that contract was this idea that you get rights back or, or like they keep the copyright, but you get a permanent sub-license after a period of time. So yeah. I think, yeah, I think you could probably republish that and stop linking to the Macworld version and nobody would notice. Right. Probably. Yeah, I've actually been meaning to do that. And I thought I even thought it even repopped into my head last week when I did the word count because I thought, well, should I count should I count that? And then I thought, well, then I'd have to find all the other ones too. And it right. seemed it seemed like I'd already given myself enough work. So I didn't count them. <laughs> and I, you know, you know what? I would have done I probably would have done it if it had if instead of being like a thousand words over two million, if it had come out like a fifteen hundred words under two million, I would have gone sure. and done it so that I could <laughs> Because it's like, and nobody, I know nobody was going to double check my work. So I could have just lied too and pumped it over, but that I wouldn't, I couldn't sleep if I had done that. So I would have somehow figured out a way to, to add to the word count and that would have been the way. So how'd you do the word count? I have to ask, how'd you do the word count? Did you do like a crazy, like custom movable type template and just export it out and then do some greps, do some Uh, regular expression stuff? No, even easier. So in movable type, you can, um, is it export? I think it's export. They have two features. One is backup. Like you back up your blog and it somehow they say this is a complete bad. I don't even know what that is. And I did that and it took forever. And I don't even know where they put it. It must be in some directory on my server in the movable type directory, like in a zip. Yeah. And then yeah. I, re- I, do, I tried the export and I thought this is probably going to time out. Um, but the export for my regular articles uh no, it didn't take too long, and it instantly turns it into a download in your browser. So it just downloads a uh, .text file. Um, the linked list one, which has like what I what did I say twenty five thousand entries, um, it took a while, but it never timed out. I never let my I never let my browser go to sleep, and I don't know. At some point, I don't know if it was five ten because I, I was I stopped paying attention, but there was a big text file in my downloads folder with, and it's so one file. For each of the two blogs, you know, my one blog in movable type is the full articles and the other one is the link list entries. Um, so I had one file for each and there's, it's, it's sort of an easy to understand format, um, you know, that movable type created for this, where oh, yeah. there's like seven dashes to separate articles and five dashes on a line to separate fields. Uh, and then, you know, a little bit of grep here and there just to delete all the other fields. And then I was left with nothing but uh, just article text. Uh, I will add, as because <laughs> this is the director's commentary of, of Daring Fireball, I made the decision, a completely arbitrary decision, that I would count my headlines as words written for my articles 
but not for linked list entries where sometimes I will write something which I think is clever as a linked list entry title, but very often I just take the headline from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or gently rewrite the original headline and, and it, it doesn't feel like it's fair to count them as words or as original words, whereas my headlines sure. I do think are. Um, so I deleted all the headlines, the titles for the linked list entries, but didn't delete the titles for Daring Fireball. And then I just wrote, a, I have a Perl script that just went through and counted all the words on lines that started with, um, you know, right pointing, you know, the, the greater than sign. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, counted those as block quotes and counted other all other lines as words of text. So the other thing okay, in there where the counts are probably a little bit inexact to tell you the truth is that the first year and a half or so of Daring Fireball entries weren't written in Markdown. They were had to because Markdown didn't exist. And so for those, I think the block quotes actually got counted as original words. So I, I, I forget. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's close enough. Yeah. I did that after after my first year doing six colors. I did I did it, and I think I I set up like a a template that was just body text of things yeah. with my byline. Since Dan and I both write on the site, and I just did I did it that way, and it just spat out an HTML file that I could oh. I could grab a little bit. But it was one yeah. file with everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like an archive, but I just I just downloaded the same the same thing here, and I can see how that would be. Uh, smart way to go because it is just a super simple text file. I had a bunch of people ask me like, "How do you think you did the word count?" Mm. So I thought I would ask. Ah, that's a good Nerds, question. You know. Um, <laughs> and then I also the other thing I did is I documented it in a note to myself in Yojimbo exactly what I searched and replaced for uh, in the file. So the next time I do it, I can just bring up that doc ah. and I don't have to spend ten minutes tweaking grep patterns to exactly nuke the parts I don't want. The funny well, part I is, wanna, I want to say, go, go ahead. Well, uh, no, you go first. I, I won't forget. All right. I, I just want to say, uh, I, it's a big deal to do anything for five years, let alone fifteen years. So to be as consistent as you've been with the site is a big deal. And people don't, I think people don't give consistency enough credit. Uh, it is a big deal to write. 1500 words or 2500 words every week for 15 years it's a huge deal and you do because as simple as it seems to put one foot after another it isn't over time because at some point you want to take a break from that and and to keep doing it and persisting is a big deal i also wanted to say personally that um the and this is a funny thing about the way the the web works and the way the media works but um you know, when I got to know you, I was the editor of a magazine with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and whatever, and we gave you some freelance work and all of that. But the fact is, you know, more often than not, Daring Fireball was an inspiration to me about how the way we were writing about technology was changing on the web. And when um, I was unhappy in my job in the last few years I was at IDG, I have to say, you know, one of the things that I thought of was, could I do what John does? Could I could I try to do that? And um, nobody's, you know, we're different people, and and the web is a very different place than than it was ten years ago or fifteen years ago. But uh, be that as it may, one of the big things in my mind when I decided to go out on my own rather than try to find a different job in the media or somewhere else was, I'm not going to forgive myself 
if I didn't give that a try. And that was because I saw what you had done and I liked it so much. And I thought that is the thing to do. That is the, that is the job I would like to have is something like what John does. So as an inspiration to me, not just for all your great work writing about this stuff, but, but on a personal level, as somebody who I looked at and said, he, he's doing, he's doing great stuff. And I, I would love to be somebody who can do something even sort of like that. I want to, I want to thank you. Well, you're very, very welcome. And I, I have to, I'm very, I have to say proud of, of the, the number of sites that are, you know, like six colors, uh, like Jim's loop, um, uh, you know, it, yeah, Mac stories, five twelve pixels. I mean, there are a lot yeah. of them that it's very clearly you're the inspiration for that. Yeah. Absolutely, and you know, and it's it's it, to me, it is a non zero sum game. So it's like you know, it, like when other sites started getting more daring fireball ish sites started appearing, I didn't think, oh, you fucker, you you know, you ripped me off. I thought, hey, this is cool. <laughs> I did. Now you know, it's the difference between me and somebody. If somebody made a site that looked like daring fireball, I'd be angry and I'd say something. Somebody who makes something that follows this format, which is different than what came before and tries to monetize it in similar ways. To me, that is like, it's like, that makes me, you know, makes me proud. So I, I appreciate your kind words Great. about that. And it, it pains me. I, I hate taking compliments, but <laughs> I'll take this yeah. one. Um, the other thing that I found in my perusal of these archives, uh, I remembered that I had done this. Um, but I, you know, this whole thing where I had to sort of parse the ones written in Markdown differently than the ones written in uh, uh, HTML. I, I, I sometimes I do forget it though. Like I know it, but when I look at it, it was weird. So uh, I linked to for the anniversary. I linked to my very first article on Daring Fireball, and all of the links, every single link in the article was a four hundred four. Uh, it, it's uh, I would I would guess that over ninety percent of the links from the first year or two of Daring Fireball are now four hundred fours, and so I thought, well, I'll fix them as best I can by painstakingly going to the Internet Archive and finding an archive version of the same thing and, and link to it, and it worked for all but one, and it, I, it makes me furious. And I'm going to call them out. It was eWeek? eWeek is still there. Mm -hmm. Still is an eWeek website, but eWeek not only broke their own goddamn URL. But their robot's text forbids the Internet Archive from archiving the article, so I can't even point to it there. So it's literally lost to time. So fuck you, Boo. week. Um, <laughs> but everything else, <laughs> I wanted to fix the links, including a whole bunch of links to Apple.com. And it was kind of funny finding them and looking at that, because you can link to it and you can see the old Apple.com web design from 2002. Um, but when I went to fix those links, uh, I opened it up in movable type, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Because <laughs> there's all these P tags all over the place. <laughs> and I, there was, it, just, just a moment. It only took me a moment to remember, yes, you had to invent Markdown to not be writing in HTML. But there was this brief moment where I really thought that I, I thought that it was like an SQL error or something. I, I, like something broke in my browser and I was looking at some, you know, something that I wasn't supposed to see. And then I realized, oh, yeah, that's how you used to have to do this. Uh, anyway, though, the thing that I found uh, that I remember is I publicly announced Markdown as a beta in March of 2004. Um, but I had been working on it since like September or October of 2003. Um, and I started writing my articles on Daring Fireball using Markdown months before I announced it. Um, and uh, mostly going back and forth with, with Aaron Swartz, who was my, my muse uh, 
for this. Like I, there were a couple people who, when I started, I emailed them and said, here's what I'm thinking about making. Would you be interested in like more or less beta testing this, giving me feedback on this? And every, almost every, every, literally every person I went to, I forget who, the, who else I went to, but almost every other person wished me well and didn't want to say anything, you know, like, like, uh, that's a stupid idea, but I think they all have more or less thought that's a stupid idea. I, I'm fine writing in HTML. Like I don't have a problem writing in HTML, so why in the world would I want to abstract it? You know, it's, except Aaron. Aaron got it right away. Uh, even though he had his own thing, which was called ATX, which was sort it was you know the exact same idea as Markdown. Like here's like a format you can write in that uh, that alleviates you of the tediousness of putting in every single HTML tag by hand and all those you know littering your text with it. Uh, and I even you know a liberal and I said to him you know here's the ideas I'm stealing from ATX. Um, but he got he instantly got how even before I, you know, my first cut at the markdown, what it would be, he instantly saw it as superior to anything else that was out there, including ATX. And at the time, Textile, which was pretty popular. Um, but what would happen is every couple of days, I'd do a new build and, and either, you know, I changed the syntax in subtle ways. Um, but I started writing my articles in it well before this. And then it's the smartest thing I think I did in the whole thing because so much changed after I actually had to use it. You know, like my ideas for how Markdown would be good when the rubber met the road, some of them were bad ideas. And then there were things that I just hadn't thought of that uh, I was like, like one of them I remember is originally I didn't have any syntax in uh, uh, Markdown for lists. I just thought, well, of all the things you have to enter in HTML, the, the OL tags and UL tags for unordered lists is no big deal. Um, but then I realized as, as so many other things got so much easier to write, I was like, wouldn't it be great if I could just put an asterisk space and then it would be a bullet item? You know, So it was through actually using it that it happened. But that meant, though, that every time I changed the syntax, as, as the months went on, I had to go back and edit every single article that I'd written for the last, you know, you know, two weeks, three weeks. And all by the end, it was like, I'd have to go back. I'd make like a subtle change and I'd have to go back and double check three months of articles (laughs) and change the syntax so that they wouldn't break. So it was kind of a pain in the ass. So anyway, I found the first article I ever wrote and published using Markdown. It was an article titled Run Panther Run on the 3rd of November, 2003. And you can verify this. There's a trick on Daring Fireball where if you add a dot text extension to any URL, you can see the markdown version of that article. And so on uh, on the one previous to that a article titled Command Tab at the end of October 2003, it's still written in raw HTML. And then the next one's written in uh, markdown. I think I counted. But you have to do dot, t- dot T-E-X-T. Yeah, T-E-X-T, because I'm not an animal mm-hmm. who's limited by a three-character extension. So anyway, I think I counted, and there by the time I uh, published the beta, and I think there were some subtle changes after that, but once the beta came out, nothing. Ch- I don't think much changed that broke older articles, but there were 31 articles that I'd have to check for <laughs> changes. It was, a, it was quite a pain in the ass. It's a good thing I'm a perfectionist, because otherwise I would have, you know, the, 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 the desire not to have to go and edit, tediously edit these articles would have led me to just have mm. shitty syntax in Markdown. I think it's funny that um, when you announced Markdown, you got the same complaints that I always got when I tried to 
explain to people why I wrote in Markdown. It's the exact, the the argument was there fully formed at the beginning, which is, why don't you just use HTML? And there's a good answer why, which is, I'm much less likely to make a mistake using this basic syntax and then compiling it into HTML than I am to making sure I get all the angle brackets and quote marks right. Plus, it's more readable. But, you know, from day one, that was the that was the, the question about Markdown. You know what? Like, to tie it with the earlier thing in the show, to me, writing in Markdown feels like swimming downstream and writing raw yeah. HTML is upstream. It's ever so slightly. It's not hard. HTML, raw HTML, especially if you're not doing the whole document, you're just doing the, you know, the article portion where you have P tags and A tags for the links and stuff like that. You know, it's not terribly upstream. But it's subtly upstream, and especially to me, and that's, you know, not to turn this into a markdown show instead of a daring fireball show, but especially for reading what you've already written. It's, it's so much nicer. I agree. But those, that early, I guess, two, almost two years of rides to Mount, boy, that, that feels like, that really feels like old times to me. That's the only part that really feels old to me. Otherwise, the weird thing about the 15-year anniversary and how much, you know, I was 29 then, I'm 44 now. I mean, that's, you know, 29 is by most people's definitions a young man and 44 is clearly middle age. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a long 15 years. Uh, But it's still, Tearing Fireball still feels new to me. I I, I can't explain why, but I, I think that's healthy. I think so. I think so. My daughter is 15, right? And I, I... that seems not that long ago, and yet it also seems like forever ago. And that's just—I get it. I—I yeah. I, I was trying to think of what I did before I wrote in Markdown, and I think the answer is that I just wrote in plain text, and I had a bunch of scripts that mm-hmm. would wrap <laughs> the wrap paragraph tags around the plain text, and right. then maybe I would just use you know bold and italics tags and hrefs. I think I would just put those in. But um, but but and then I would just wrap it in paragraph tags at the end using a script and then no. and then paste it in somewhere. That's, I think exact, that's what I that is literally exactly how Markdown started. Well, half the story of how Markdown started. Uh, uh, that's what I used to do for the first two years: is write like in something that looked sort of like Markdown, maybe without the italics tags. You know, like for ta- italics, I would actually put like an M in there, but no P tags. Uh, and then at some point, I, I, I'm so visually. Uh, distracted by like an inline ahref equals quote, here's a big long URL. And, and uh, inline links really distract me when reading the raw HTML. You know, I, I had something that I could grep for to, you know, that in the first draft, I could, you know, keep the URLs out of the text. But then once I was like, okay, this is done, I'd like run a script or a couple of search and replace. Then it was in HTML. But then at that point, any subsequent edits had to be done in the HTML. Right. It was like you could do it right. up it's to your burned first. In. Right. Yeah. And so the idea was, well, why not try to make something, you know, and there was already a, a very popular textile plugin for movable type, um, you know, that would let, you know, it was the same idea as Markdown where you could keep it in that format and it would only, you know, every time you publish, it would just spit out a, a version. Um, as, but that's exactly what I did too. All right. Let me take a break and thank our next sponsor. Um, it's our good friends at Casper. Uh, this is a mattress that was designed by a team of 20 mattress engineers. That's a real deal. That's, that's a real thing. 20 people who, who just engineer mattresses. Uh, and then perfected by a community of nearly half a million sleepers who've given feedback to them. Uh, and, you know, 
helped improve the product. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Mattresses are a huge ripoff in general. The traditional mattresses are. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and all that stuff and passing the savings directly to you. You just go to Casper.com, you pick what size mattress you want, and they ship it direct to you. Uh, it's so super convenient now because it's, it's, it's foam. It's not like a spring or something like that. What they can do is they can vacuum pack it and it comes in a remarkably small box for a mattress. It might be the biggest box you get sent to you this month, but considering that there's a whole mattress in there, it's actually remarkably small. And then you take it up to the bedroom where you're going to open it. You follow the instructions on the box and then it sucks all the oxygen out of the air. So you got to be careful because you know, you, you might not be able to breathe. And then there it is, a full-size mattress. And it is great. It is such a great mattress. And it combines the pressure-relieving support of memory foam with a breathable open cell layer on the top for all-night comfort. Um, I said this the last time they sponsored the show. This summer, we we went to uh, on vacation. A lot of times you stay in a nice hotel, you get a really nice mattress. Um, It... it, my son, who has a Casper mattress, could not wait. The number one reason he couldn't wait to get home from vacation was to go back to bed on his, his Casper mattress. Could not wait. Uh, he's, like, addicted to it. Uh, it it's really it's just a great product. And they have affordable prices because they sell direct to you. They have free shipping to U.S. and Canada. And they have a 100-night trial. So any hesitation you might have over not being able to sit on it in a skanky mattress showroom and sort of, you know, bounce on it and see if you like it. Uh, 100 nights to sleep on it. And they have a free, no-hassle return policy if you're not happy. You just go back to Casper.com, tell them you're not happy. They'll arrange for pickup and completely free of charge and with a full refund, they'll take the mattress away. So you can't lose. Uh, They have over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars uh, based on Casper, Amazon, and Google reviews. And I can see why. It's, it's just a great product. And it's uh, designed, developed, and assembled right here in the USA. So here's what you can do. You can uh, dive deeper into the science behind the perfect mattress and get 50 bucks towards any regular mattress at casper.com slash the talk show. And just remember that code, the talk show, and you'll save the money. So Thank you very much to Casper. Love their product. Next time you need a mattress, keep them in mind. All right. I'm done talking about Daring Fireball's anniversary. Are you? I mean, I thank everybody for the good words, but let's let's start on the next 15. You covered it. Yeah. All right. Next on my list of topics is this new feature that Apple's added to iOS 11 uh, that people are calling like a cop mode. Um, but the basic idea is that they've had, there's a new feature in iOS 11 where if you quickly tap the home button five times, it doesn't have to be super quick either. Uh, it, it brings up the emergency SOS screen where you can just slide to call 911. And if you set up your phone with your medical in- information, um, it can just slide to unlock that. So, for example, let's just say you've got some kind of medical condition and you pass out or have a seizure or something like that, or you're in an accident and you're incapacitated, uh, a first responder, if they find an iPhone in your pocket, if it, once this word spreads around, they can tap that button five times. And, and if there's a medical thing and they tell them that you're allergic to penicillin, like I am, or something like that, there it is right there. And they know how to get to it and they don't have to unlock your phone. It's a great feature. Well, in one of the most recent betas, I think it was like two betas ago, 
Apple added a feature to this where once you enter this SOS emergency screen uh, to unlock your phone after that, you have to use the passcode, not Touch ID. So in the same way that when you power the phone off, and this has been like this ever since Touch ID came out, and, and power it back on from being truly off, not just asleep, you have to enter the passcode uh, touch ID, before Touch ID can work. Now, this is really useful, though, for somebody, let's just say, like if you're going through customs or something like that, and let's face it, in today's world, it, it's a reasonable concern um, that you might want to engage this mode and... Um, then you can't be required. You can't be required to use Touch ID or coerced into using Touch ID to unlock your phone. Um, I think this is a great feature. And I think Apple's implemented it really, really well. Yeah, the idea that you can um, do this like just stick your finger in your pocket and press the button, and you've you've deactivated Touch ID essentially until you log in. It's not, you know, it's, first off, this emergency ID thing is a really cool feature. There's a version of it in now where if you uh, get to the password screen, there's an emergency button and you can make an emergency call without logging in. And there's also uh, personal data there. You enter it through the health app. So I've, I've got that in mind. Um, and and idea the idea is first responders know that right. it's there and they know how to get to it and and I know, I don't have a medic alert bracelet I used to wear one because one of my pupils is larger than the other and that can lead to a misdiagnosis of a concussion when I don't have one hmm. um, and so I've got that in my medical info in my iPhone just as a as a another uh, place where they could gather info and it's got like my wife's name and phone number and some other health information about me and that's really useful but this adds this other layer of of uh, not only quick access but the the touch id lockout which everybody else was saw, saying like you know lick your finger and right. then touch it on the button a few times until it fails and goes back to the password this is this is way better than that i should say that all these security experts will tell you um making your phone not able to open biometrically does not, and forgive me, this sounds terrible, but it's really accurate, does not stop them from beating it out of you. If right. if, if, if it's somebody who is a, uh, if you're in a, a, a place uh, with authorities who can get that out of you by some other means, your actual password, they can do that. But in the United States, if they're following the law, they can't physically compel you to enter your password, but they, legally, but they can physically compel you to put your finger on your phone. So that... Right. It makes a difference. Makes a difference. At least, at least according to some court cases that have already come out, I don't think it's actually like gone to the Supreme Court and been officially decided. But there have been court rulings that police can force somebody to, you know, require somebody to to use their fingerprint. And in one case, the funny part was that in the one case where where it happened, the law enforcement got got the judgment that said yes you can require this guy to you can't can't make him tell you your passcode but you can make him put his finger on the thing and but by the time they got the judgment the timeout period had gone so that the phone required the passcode anyway <laughs> which is i enjoyed that very much um yeah but anyway i would the imagine reason, that they can't comp i imagine they can't like force your finger onto the phone either right. that you have to sort of do it of your own free will although there might yeah. be a court case about that at some point too right the other reason this is interesting is that there are rampant rumors that at least one of the new uh iphones coming out probably next month is going to use uh, 3d facial recognition as a biometric identification uh either in addition to Touch ID or instead of Touch ID. And 
uh, I'm sure you've heard the same thing too, talking about it and writing about it over the last few months, mm-hmm. is, is an awful lot of people who are very, very reasonably, this is, I'm not making fun of or disagreeing at all, but who are very, very reasonably wary of having something where the cops, it, 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 law enforcement wouldn't even need to force you to put your finger on the thing. They can, if, if you're being held, they could just hold the phone in front of your face and unlock it. Uh, right. Totally reasonable concern. It actually, I, I agree, it would be easier for law enforcement to get into a phone with facial recognition uh, than, than touch ID. And this is an interesting thing where once you anticipate that this is going to happen, you're literally just five quick taps away from locking them out of that. I do wonder about the um, about this this face ID feature that I, I would think that it would be constructed in a way where it would try very hard to get the sense of whether you were holding your phone or not, right? Yeah, that it would it would be one of the fundamental things here is somebody across the table from you cannot pick up your phone, unlock it, and then start sending, looking through your email. Somebody can't walk away with your phone and then from, you know, across the room surreptitiously as you're looking frantically for your phone, hold it toward you and then get all your information out of it. That It needs to be able to, if it's going to have this wide angle lens and have an idea of sort of like where your face is, it should actually be able to make a judgment about like, you're not close enough to for me to unlock at this point that has to be part of the deal yeah i I, you would think so and i you know i would anticipate that assuming that this pans out this is going to be a significant segment of the keynote address introducing the phone explaining how it works in the way it 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 tries to be smart um i I, just to scratch another thing off the things i've been meaning to to talk about here just to 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 alleviate us nonstop stream of feedback from listeners is is skepticism from from people who hear about this feature and think this is going to be terrible i don't want to have to hold my phone in front of my face like i'm taking a selfie every single time i want to unlock the phone and um, you're thinking of if that's your concern you're thinking about this all wrong there's no way apple would use this if that was how it worked it's not like taking a picture of yourself i'm sure of it i i know nothing of this i've heard i have no little birdies who've told me about this um I just just knowing Apple, they wouldn't add the feature if that's how limited it was. Surely it, it's something that works with a very wide range of view um, so that it's not like taking a picture. It may not even be a camera per se, that it's just some sort of 3D IR sensor. Uh, oh, and the other thing is that, it, of course, it'll work in the dark. And I think there's even rumors coming out of the supply chain that it's an infrared system. That it's you know that you won't. It's not like you won't be able to unlock your phone unless you turn the lights on in the middle of the night. It's it's just not that sort of thing at all. Yeah, I I am fascinated. Look, I mean, bad products exist, bad features exist. It ab- absolutely is the case. I am fascinated by. I think it must just be human nature that that some people will. Um, hear about something and immediately imagine the worst case right. scenario and then attack that and say, that right. sounds terrible because I had this happen to me the other week where um, I forget even what it was. I think it was like the plot to a movie or something. And somebody said, oh, well, that's going to be terrible because it's going to be like this. And I thought, well, you just imagine the worst thing and then said it would be bad. But that you you did that, not not the people who are making the movie. That was you and your creativity finding something bad. Like, 
the bar for biometric unlocking on the iPhone is so high. This is such a core feature. It is mm-hmm. so not, if you think back to the um, iPhone 7 Plus and the two cameras, right? right. That was a, oh, well, it's going to be in beta and it's not it's not really done yet and all of that. That was, that was not a core feature of the OS. This is a core feature. So, if you are imagining a scenario where there's going to be a new iPhone and the only way you're going to be able to unlock it is with this janky face unlock that requires you to smile and make a take a selfie and turn on the light if it's too dark and things like that. Like, if they were at that point, and they where, would have killed the feature. You have to be wearing the same pair of glasses that you were wearing when you first <laughs> set it up. No, it, yeah, it cannot no work way. like that. It cannot work like that. It, no, they would they would have killed that. And in fact, I wonder sometimes if if because I I remember this rumor has floated around before. I wonder if they have, they have been testing this a while and it was just not good enough. And right. that only now is it good enough for them to do it. But the, there's just no way that Apple is going to ship this thing now. Might it have quirks, especially at first? Sure, but it's just I cannot envision Apple screwing up something as important as a biometric ID system. Right. Like, th- this has got to this has got to work rock solid or they would never have put it in production. Yeah, and, you know, Touch ID is where the bar is. And, and you know, really, it's, it's not just like Touch ID from three or four years ago with the iPhone 5S. It's where Touch ID is today with the iPhone 7 right. and iOS 10 and just how quick, you know, it, I don't know. For me, at least, it, I, I can't imagine how making Touch ID faster would improve anything because it doesn't seem to me like it, it, it's as close to instantaneous as I desire. Um, and the goal is is for this to be seamless. I, I think I have to think the reason they're doing this is because they want they want the ultimate experience of using iPhone to be that when you're holding your iPhone, it knows it, and everything just works. Right. And when you're not, it's locked. Right. And how do you do that? Well, there's technology and infrared and who knows what else is going on behind the scenes. But from the user's perspective, leaving all the tech aside, what Apple the ultimate goal is when you're using your phone, it works fine and you have access to everything. And when you're not. It's locked, right? right? And if this is how they're doing that, the, the goal here is that you shouldn't have to... Touch ID is not a great burden, right? But what they're saying is you shouldn't even need that. All you should need to be is physically present. Right. And the phone will figure out, oh, you're here. Then here's all your stuff. Yeah. Uh, and possibly could even lock automatically just when your face is no longer within the field of view. I don't know. Maybe. Or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's all sorts of potential there, but Apple knows the bar is high and, and Apple does make mistakes too. That's the other thing. It's the argument here is an Apple never is perfect, never screws anything up, but I would argue that they never screw up anything like this. Like by like, like, and I know that there are phones out there that have facial scanners for identification. And I know that every single one that's already out there sucks in some way, you know, it's either foolable by a, a flat still picture of the person or, um, it's slow or, or, you know, it has to be a narrow field of view or something like that. I know that there's a bunch out there that, that suck, but Apple would, there's no way they would make one that sucks when they already have a biometric ID touch ID that it doesn't suck. 
And Touch ID, when it was rumored, we heard these same stories because there had been fingerprint readers. Like, I think Samsung had one where you kind of had to, like, move your thumb, like, over it slowly. Like, you were swiping a credit card somewhere. Like, you had to slowly slide your thumb over it, and it was a bad experience. And then Apple did it, and it was not that experience. It was much better. And, like, yeah, I just really believe, not that Apple doesn't make mistakes, but that this is such a core feature that if if it was no good... The phone just wouldn't ship. They would have a different phone without it. Disney World for years has had a thing where they uh, they have a in Florida the Florida parks have a thing where you to get in the park you have to put your finger on a thing. You you give them your ticket or scan your band or whatever, and then you use your finger. And the idea is it's it's obviously a a method of trying to prevent a single pass from being used by multiple people, right? whether for the day or, or like if you have like an annual pass or something like that, you can't just, you know, let your cousins use it or something like that. Um, and you know, it works pretty great, you know, for, in terms of how quickly you expect to go through the turnstile at a theme park, but it's way slower than you would ever want for your phone. If, if, if your iPhone unlocked at the speed that the Disney world turnstiles do, I recognize in your fingerprint, no one would use touch ID. Everyone would do everything with their passcode. They wouldn't, wouldn't even, you wouldn't even bother setting up touch ID, um, and so I remember when this was announced back with the 5S and people, I remember people saying, like, John, you go to Disney World. I know that, you know, this is going to suck. And it's like, ah, oh, come on. They got, they, it has to be better than that. And of course it was way better than that. Yeah. Uh, which we could kind of, <laughs> we could kind of quickly segue into German's article on this point. Uh, uh, but I don't want to make a big uh, segment out of it. But but Mark Gurman had a story in Bloomberg the other day, the the premise of which was that Apple's success is b- because they're very good at following the features from other phones that come out first. Um, <laughs> and the reason I, I it's not even worth going into is that the article was very just bad because the actual article itself and the artwork that accompanied it, like uh, he listed like 13 features and eight out of the 13 features he listed were in iPhones before they were in competing phones. Um, But one of them, the thing that made me think of it was that he listed the fingerprint scanner as a uh, thing that came out in a competing phone first and that Apple followed. But that's, you know, the, like the Motorola one that had that, it it was truly awful. I mean, every, every single review I've, I, I even looked a couple of them up the other day when I was thinking about writing German story. And it's like everybody said, this is terrible. This is absolutely horrible. And Touch ID right from day one was actually really kind of amazingly good. So, I mean, if you really want to be pedantic, you can say, yes, Apple was the follower there. But the fact that all phones, all modern phones across operating systems today have fast, accurate, trustworthy fingerprint uh, scanners, it, you know, Apple led the way on that. Yeah, you know, one of the things in that story is about like mobile payments, and I, I mean, you could read the story as basically being Apple doesn't have to be first, but they they do it right. Right, they have to do it right, and I think that's accurate. I think that that's right. an accurate way of viewing Apple is that Apple isn't always first, and people who claim, oh, look at Apple, they're just copying X. The point is not to be first, but to be the one that does it right, and that leads to sour grapes of like, how is it that Apple gets all this credit right. when th- this other company did it first? And the answer is because Apple did it better 
and it and Apple Pay is the perfect example, right? Like Google Wallet existed right. three years, three and a half years before Apple Pay was launched, and nobody cared. And then Apple did Apple Pay, and they did it right, and they launched it properly. And you know, Google recast as their payment as Android Pay, and Samsung did Samsung Pay, and it was all just let's do what Apple just did. And yeah. so, no, Apple wasn't first, but Apple was the first one to do it right. Now, that isn't right. always the case. Like OLED, they, they like list OLED, and it's like, well, the early OLED screens weren't really great, and there was a reason. But recently, there have been some very good phones with yeah. OLED screens, and Apple hasn't done it yet. So yeah. that that's a place where Apple's a little behind. And, you, and I think you pointed out on Twitter that the big screen thing is the most obvious one. Like Apple was lagged way behind in having a large screened phone when that was clearly a successful market category. Uh, yeah, and that was baffling to me that Garmin didn't even mention that because that's the one where it, his premise was closest to being true, which is that the competing phones had it. Apple didn't it was uh, it was in demand i mean famously came out it's one of those rare insights into apple's internal deliberations where there was an email thread that came out thanks to the subpoenas or whatever you want to call it during the apple samsung lawsuit um but that an internal apple presentation you know was uh, introduced as evidence and i think the exact phrase was um Consumers want what we don't have, meaning five plus inch phones. Uh, right. You know, I think I think marketing, I think product marketing wise, the the correct time for Apple to introduce the plus size phones would have been with the iPhone five. Um, you know, they were about two years behind on that. You know, and and totally because of how far in advance they have to plan their supply chain for iPhones, there was no way they did. It was literally impossible for them to pivot quicker than that. Like they were already committed when the iPhone five came out, they were already fully committed to the iPhone five S as their next year strategy with no phone bigger than four inches. Yeah. And, and there was a software component too, which was, a, which really hamstrung them is that yes. they had, the apps were all designed for that pixel perfect layout right. and that they struggled to get even like iPhone five apps that were taller. Right. And, and obviously at WWDC, like the next year, it, they really leaned into uh, basically size independent layout of apps because they were going in that direction. But like, even if they had shipped a, a five plus I'm not sure. I mean, they just the 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 software was not ready to take advantage of it yet. It, they would have really struggled with apps. They would have yeah. been uh, upscaling apps and things like that because they weren't. The OS needed a couple more years to yeah. get to the point where they could scale. Yeah, but they really got caught flat-footed on that. And, and they did because it they totally took, did because it was the sort of thing that would take you know two years of supply chain planning and maybe you know probably roughly. I mean, the software side's a little squishier. It's not quite as cut and dry as hardware, but you know, like you're right. Like there was about a two year transition period in iOS where, you know, the, the, the way that you do layout was shifted from, you know, uh, pixel perfect designs to these, uh, forget what the term is, but, um, you know, and it plays out now in things like having a narrow column app on the iPad, that's roughly an iPad or iPhone width, but goes the full exactly. height of the iPad screen. Uh, all of that stuff came about over the course of like two or three revisions of iOS which is an annual thing. Yeah, so yeah, you're so right. It's, fun, it's funny to see this perception and, and how it 
is, you know, I, I don't think it's wrong. I don't know. I mean, Mark Gurman knows a lot about Apple. So so this the weirdness is in the story. Sometimes I wonder, since he's been at Bloomberg, how much of this is is him and how much of it is his sort of superiors who want to do this kind of story. And they've got an idea of a narrative. And, you know, because, because it's not, that's what's weird about this story is it's not wrong. It's just also not quite right. And it kind of misses the mark about what Apple is is trying to do here. Because right. it, is, it is true that Apple is sometimes behind in new tech. Not always, but sometimes. But sometimes they're the one who, you know, they, they make their first cut, the right cut, instead of doing yeah. what their competitors sometimes do, which is rush something out before it's ready. There's a very, you're right from a couple minutes ago, there, you're right that there's a very good story in this which is primarily about Apple only doing things one, you know, releasing things once they're up to a certain standard and m- many opposing, you know, opposite companies, competing companies having a lesser standard of, well, we've got a fingerprint scanner that quote works. So let's stick it in the phone. Uh, there's an interesting story there, but this story isn't it. Like it, and, and again, point by point, it's not that his article was wrong, but the central premise was clearly wrong, which is that Apple yeah, always I mean- follows. Yeah, the janky thing about um, like uh, uh, janky face unlock detection stuff. Like, there, you could say, oh, Samsung had you know facial recognition and face detection a long time ago. They had that goofy feature where like you're watching a movie and your eyes look away for a moment yeah. and it pauses the video, which is not what anybody ever, ever, ever wants. You must stare at this movie. Don't look away, not even for a second. But um, but they did have something, right? It was just not very good. And that's the difference is, is if it reminds me of the days um, when there were all these Mac versus PC articles and there was all these checkboxes and they'd be like, oh, you know, the Mac doesn't have that. Yeah. And, and as a Mac user, you'd be like, wait, 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 but that's not a thing that works on the Mac. Why is that relevant? And right. if you boil it down to that, that level, if it's that reductive, you can get, uh, it, it can be kind of misleading. And that, yeah. that I see some of that in this. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I'm glad you brought that up. But the, the checkbox... Checklist, checklist comparisons. Apple has never fared well on and never will as long as they remain the Apple that we know. Like, and, and I think there is something to the fact that their, their struggles in the mid nineties, part of it was, was based on that, that, that so much of the growth of the PC industry from say 1985 to 95 was driven by businesses and that sort of checklist comparison of we can we can get all these check marks and pay this much seven hundred dollars with this option, and we only get these three check marks over here, and it costs eight hundred dollars. So we can get more check marks for less money with this, whether it's a software package or you know this this PC hardware or something like that. Apple has never done well with that. It's it's you've got to to understand why Apple products and. Ex- are, are desirable. You've really got to thoroughly explore the overall experience. Always right, because true. otherwise you're going to say, you know, facial recognition um, check, right? That that Samsung thing that paused your <laughs> paused your movie when you weren't looking at it. Like, okay, that check, right? Yeah. And years before, but it's not the same, and it's not. Or Apple Pay is a is a good example of like, well, it's just a rip off of the thing that Google did three years before, right? right. Except it wasn't right. the way it was implemented was different. But you can't reduce it to that. Yeah. And I, you know, again, yeah, it's it's a good. It, this is a really meaty topic because like this is this is how you. Uh, compete, and this is how Apple does what it does: is like deciding the right time to spring. And sometimes they don't 
make it right. Sometimes they can't ship it. Sometimes they don't think it's an issue, which is, I think, what it was with a large phone. I think mm-hmm. that for a while, they just didn't believe that those phones were going to be truly popular, I, and then they had to scramble. I, I didn't. I personally didn't. And I think I yeah. have a mindset that is very copacetic to those people people who work and design things at Apple. And just picking up an inert don't use it. Just just pick up a big like plus. I I still think it today, honestly, with the iPhone Plus. I don't like the size. I really don't. I agree. Um, and and in but those it's, are, it's are, not for us, right? right. So we're we're just like willing right. to go along and say, sure, it doesn't. I don't I don't see the appeal of it. But right. I, I'm not sure Samsung did either. But right. Samsung, their whole strategy is just make all the phones and all the sizes and see yeah. what happens. And right. and that mm-hmm. one hit. And to their credit. Yeah. And in hindsight, I can kind of see the mistake where imagine a world where every, every uh, MacBook is a, you know, like a MacBook Air or the 12 inch MacBook uh, and all the competitors copied it. And so all of the laptops are this, that size. And then somebody comes out with a 15 inch laptop and you'd be like, well, that's ridiculous. It's going to break your back. It's not going to fit in your bag. Uh, and it's you can't use it on an airplane seat. It's, this is ridiculous. Uh, but of course, since the laptop world didn't really evolve that way, it evolved with multiple choices, you know, and started, started big and got small instead of starting small and getting big. It, it, you know, nobody would, nobody thinks it's goofy that Apple offers a range of laptop sizes from the 12-inch MacBook up to the 15-inch MacBook Pro. Yeah, and going back to our point about keyboards earlier, um, you know, sometimes it's great to have that steward who says, I think this is what you're looking for. And, but that can be too extreme too, where you, where you make, I I hear this about the MacBooks all the time, right? Where people, people who don't like the new MacBook keyboard, it's like, sorry, it's everywhere now. You don't get a choice. There is, if you want a Mac laptop, you get that keyboard and that's the end of the discussion. And I think the iPhone was very much like that, where some of it was the way the operating system was set. The, The apps were so great, but they were all tied to that very particular screen real estate and the OS needed to be updated and the apps needed to be updated to change it. So that was part of it. But part of it was, Apple, uh, the original iPhone did so well that Apple's like, well, this is, we, we nailed it. This is the only, this is the only phone we need to make. And it took Apple quite a while to realize yeah. maybe we need more sizes of iPhone, just like we have more sizes yeah. of the laptop. And yeah. it took them too long. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and at their best, you know, Apple is solely focused on experience and, and that's really what it always comes down to. And so I can see like at a technical level, if you just like, if let's say we were, you and I are assigned to the team to make a phone that detects when you're looking at the screen and can pause a movie when your eyes move away. And imagine like, you, and you just, it sounds like a cool project, right? Like to, to actually just, just the engineering of having, well, what kind of sensors do we need? Is a camera good enough? Do we need uh, some other sensor that can specifically, you know, look at, at, you know, like some kind of, you know, like retina scanning type thing, or, you know, do we need infrared? What do we need? And get the hardware working. And then you get the software, you know, you just blindly go and get it all working. And imagine you get it working like perfectly. And it's like every, you know, like every single time you avert your eyes, the movie pauses and it's like high fives all around. This works great. And then you just ship it in the phone and never really thinking like, is this actually a desirable experience? (laughs) Which it's not. (laughs) Right. You, you've you done all this hard work and I don't even know because I didn't have that phone. So I don't even know if it was actually very accurate technically. 
you know, but it's just, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt that they solved all the technical problems and got it working as perfectly as it could be, you know, like as well as touch ID works for fingerprint sensing. They've just created a feature that <laughs> sounds like hell on earth. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant piece of technology and uh, is not how anybody actually wants to use it. And that's, you're right, that Apple, Apple at its worst, that's what happens. But Apple's culture is built around not letting that kind of thing happen, the technology for technology's sake. It's like, why would somebody want to do this? And you start with that. Although I have to give a lot of people credit because the, um, the iPhone 7 removing the headphone jack is apparently now a feature to be emulated, except for the Le, Le Eco phone, which which really trailblazed that category by not that, having a headphone. That jack. might have been the biggest eye roll in in German's article was not giving Apple credit for removal of a headphone jack. A calling it a feature, and B not giving them credit mm -hmm. for for trailblazing that when the example was a company that literally nobody on earth had ever heard of. Like, there's people who work at Leco who'd never heard of the company. Yeah, it, the 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 eyeball tracking deposit movie reminds me of there's like a whole class of jokes like this of people getting sent to hell. Uh, like the version I, I remember for some reason is some guy who's an avid golfer, you know, has a heart attack and, uh, you know, feels his soul going down instead of up and thinks, oh, God, this is terrible. I'm spending eternity in hell. And then he gets there and they welcome him. And, and first thing he gets is a brand new set of ping golf clubs. He's like, what the hell? And then they open the gates and hell is an exact replica of Augusta National Golf Course. And it's just in beautiful condition and the weather is perfect. And and the devil's there to greet me. He's like, what's going on? This is hell? And the devil says, oh, yeah. Um, and and he says, you want a tea time for tomorrow? And he's, and he's like, sure, that'd be great. And he's like, all right. And, he, and he's look, checking out the bag and he goes, where do I go to get golf balls? And the devil goes, golf balls? <laughs> Right. It reminds me like you get sent to hell and you're like they give you a phone and you can watch all the movies you want. But <laughs> every time you move your eyes away, it's going to pause like it just yeah. it just sounds like it's on that spectrum of, you know, clockwork orange. Right. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You got <laughs> all right. Let me take a break here and thank our next sponsor is a brand new sponsor of the show. I'm very excited about this. And I think they have an, a very interesting, very innovative product. It's a company called Aftershocks, and they spell it A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z. Aftershocks head makes headphones, and they work by bone conduction. I'd never even heard of this before, um, but the way it works is that they have small trans transducers that rest in front of your ears. They don't go inside your ears like earbuds, and they don't go around them like most big headphones. And, and what they do is they send mini vibrations through your cheekbones directly to your inner ear, bypassing your ears and eardrums. Now, that sounds like it wouldn't even work. I, I remember reading this. Um, they sent them, I mean, a pair, and it's kind of amazing. Like the first second or two, it's like, whoa, what the heck's going on? And then you get used to it, and uh, it, you just hear very clear audio. Um, so unlike every other kind of headphone, bone conduction leaves your ears completely open with nothing in them. And there are some major, major benefits like this. Um, this means that if you're using them in an environment where you want to hear the outside world to some degree, uh, like if you live in a city like I do and you want to be able to hear traffic and stuff like that while you're listening to stuff, uh, you hear more of the outside world with these than you do with in-ear 
uh, earbuds. Another one, and this is huge, and I know that there are tons of people out there like this who just can't wear earbuds. Um, it, it either physically hurts their ears or they don't stay in and they fall out because there's a million different shapes of ears and stuff like that. Um, Aftershock's headphones don't have this problem because nothing goes inside your ear. Uh, they're great for exercise in hot weather too. They stay in place and they're IP55 certified for water resistance. So any kind of like sweatiness or rain or anything like this, you do not need to care. They're designed for this. Um, it's really an amazing technology. I, I really blows my mind that it's actually sending vibrations through my cheekbones and I can hear them. Uh, but really that the, the fact that you can hear the, the sound from the outside world around you is just the game changer in this. Um, another one I can just imagine if you're like a parent and you've got like a baby or something like that, you want to be able to hear the baby if you're listening to stuff all day long. It's absolutely great for that. Uh, what's the downside? Well, the downside is they're not good for really noisy surroundings where you want to block out the surrounding sound. But there's all sorts of, that's what existing headphones are already great at. Um, it's really, really great. Uh, they're wireless. That's the, the Trex titanium model, which they sent me. Um, battery life is quoted at six hours of playback and 10 hours of standby. Uh, I found that they easily match that. Uh, definitely, you know, not something you have to charge after like listening to a two hour podcast, uh, cough, cough. Uh, you easily get through, you know, six hours. Uh, and they come with a two year warranty. Uh, Aftershocks Trex Titanium, they retail for 130 bucks. But you, you, dear listener of the talk show, can snag a pair for just $99.95. Let's call it 100 bucks by visiting tts.aftershocks.com. That's TTS for the talk show.aftershocks.com. I think that's the first sponsor that I can recall that used a, uh, a, what do you call that? A, a domain name thing uh, instead of a slash TTS. So that's pretty clever right there. So my thanks to Aftershocks for sponsoring the show. And if you are the type of person who is totally dissatisfied with over-the-ear headphones or in-ear ear pods, I, I, I implore you to check them out because this it totally works. It is really, really great sound. Uh, so my thanks to them for checking them out or for uh, sponsoring the show, I should say. Uh, what's next on our agenda there, Jason? It looks like, do we need to talk about uh, Favacons? Yeah, that was a, something I wrote about recently. Uh, I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to, I, I just want to quickly say that it, uh, I don't know, you might have been traveling when I wrote that article, but. Um, oh, no, no, that was right before I left because oh, yes, I wrote it. you wrote I, about it too, right. I wrote a thing about about whether they, for me, the core thing here, because I mean, the short version is Chrome shows the the, the little fav icon thing that is that's been around forever uh, in tabs, and Safari doesn't, and should it is question one. And for me, it always comes back to the pinned tabs thing that they added last year on macOS, which is in a completely different format. It's an SVG, so it's resolution independent, and it's a single uh, color, essentially, and it's a, it's a silhouette when it's not selected, and when it's selected, you can choose, uh, you define what color shows up uh, as the color of your shape, and that's it. So Apple invented this entire feature that's like outdoing the, the fav icon, and so I'm not sure Apple 
really ever wants to put anything in the tab, especially right. since it's not in any of the other tabs anywhere else in uh, in Sierra, which they added the ability to put tabs everywhere, but none of them have icons. So that's one. And two, like if they really liked the that format, the fav icon format that every website has, why would they have invented their own when they did pin tabs? But they did. They totally invented their own format that... Um, and that's separate still from thing that I don't think anybody mentioned, which is the um, touch icon, which is what happens if you save a mm. bookmark to your home screen on an iPhone or an iOS device. That's a different format altogether that is also available. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think the simple answer may be that Apple doesn't think that, that you need an icon in your tabs. But it is kind of funny that Apple keeps trying to invent new formats because the existing formats that are on the web aren't good enough for them. So I th- it makes sense that the touch icon is different because it needs to be bigger than a five, fav icon. So it needs to be a different sure. image. You know, there's nobody who has a fav icon that's big enough to look good stretched to the size of an icon on, on the home screen. Um, my guess, and it's somewhat informed, is that it, it, it's, this issue is divisive within Apple. Uh, there's, there's certainly, there's a lot of people within Apple you know, who, who wish that Safari showed fav icons on the tabs and have for years. And there's another contingent that is opposed to it on uh, this part is a little bit speculative, but I can't even imagine what else it is on aesthetic grounds that a bunch of randomly colored tabs, you know, icons on tabs is aesthetically discordant perhaps is a way to put it as opposed to what it looks like now, which is monochromatic. And, you know, um, I mean, it, you know, even the toolbar buttons in modern Mac design are all monochrome, um, which, you know, in some ways I can see that does look good, but in other ways I think suffers usability wise where, you know, having a red, having a stop sign for like a stop button be red actually is a little bit easier to identify quickly than, having a monochrome one. Um, and you know, I think that the monochrome crowd won out. And so my guess is to, this is, and this is truly just a guess is my guess is that when they did pin tabs, the pin tabs, the whole idea is that they're supposed to be super small and therefore you need them to be iconified. There's no way that you can use text to notify, you know, the whole point is supposed to have a little tiny tab over on the side that is there all the time. So it has to be an icon. But if the argument within them all, the, you know, was mostly based on not having random color elements and sticking to a monochrome aesthetic, they kind of needed to introduce their own format so that they'd be in a format that would look good monochrome. Because you can't just take any... You can't just take any fav. Some would look good. Some fav icons, like Daring Fireballs, might look good if you took all the color out of them. Uh, might not look that different at all. Others might be rendered, you know, uh, unidentifiable. Uh, and so, if you're going to introduce a new format, why not use SVG and make them resolution independent as opposed to limiting them to 32 pixels or 64 or whatever? So that's my guess as to how that format came about. And it wasn't that it wasn't so much arrogance on their part that we can just force the web to adopt a format that we specify, but that internally to get the feature approved, it needed to be monochrome. And if it needed to be monochrome, it needed to be a new format. Yep. Makes sense. So, so the, so the question is, um, should Apple 
make this a feature or turn it on for everyone or make it an accessibility? I heard a lot of ex- accessibility commentary that I kind of I kind of understand, like the ability to discern, especially if you have lots of tabs. I don't I don't do lots of tabs, so right. and I totally get there are some really damning screenshots of Safari with lots of tabs versus Chrome with lots of tabs, and you can pick out that tab of that site on Chrome and you have no idea on Safari. And I think it's a strong argument. Um, personally, I, I don't. I think when I wrote about it, I think the first thing I said was, I kind of don't care, but I'm trying to understand like why Apple has this attitude that it has. And I think you're right. I think it is aesthetic. And I think the Apple uh, or the uh, pin tab thing is, it shows that there are people inside Apple who are like, they don't want to touch those uh, those fab icons if they can help it. I mean, they're they're in your like bookmarks menu and stuff yeah. they do exist in a few places but it, it, they're really de-emphasized so obviously apple wants to keep them at arm's length i i've i've really hoped that they do this i mean i went so far as to you know write this article you know pushing for it but i, I was just blown away from when i first brought this up as to how many people wrote to me and said that they're using chrome because of this and they would love they know about the battery life advantages of safari and or they they would love to take take you know part of Safari's better integration with iCloud you know like with the reading list that you can send articles from any other app use the sharing sheet and send it to reading list and then read them in Safari later you know it just integrates better with the an iCloud based lifestyle they would love to do it but they have lots of tabs open all the time and they pick them out by fav icon and therefore can't use Safari. Really just this one issue. And, you know, what is that true or not? If, if a 200 people wrote to me out of however many thousand people read the article and said that, is it really true that if Safari introduces fav icons and tabs that these people would switch or give it a try? I, I mean, I can't prove that, but uh, I got enough earnest emails from people that I, I honest to God believe that some measurable percentage of Mac users would switch from Chrome to Safari if Safari, if Safari had five icons, at least as an option. And, and the hmm. option thing I think is key to it. Like, sure. And I heard from some people who are like, oh my God, I don't want, I, I find those five icons to be so gross. You know, I don't want them. So fine. You know, I'd say definitely make it an option. Maybe even make it off by default. I mean, you know, but but just put a thing in the Safari view menu that, to show, show five icons and tabs. Uh, and, and it would really have a me- I, I really mean it a measurable effect on on you know maybe that measurable effect is three percent I don't know but that's I'll bet the people on the WebKit team and the Safari team would love to have those three percent you know if your life's work is is working on Safari and WebKit it, it would drive me nuts knowing that we're losing three four five percent of our potential Mac users simply because we're not permitted to put tabs in the uh, fav icons in the tabs. I think I I think it's not unreasonable to give people options. Um, I I can see the aesthetic arguments against it, but you know they could either invent a new format. And I, I had somebody say to me, well, yeah, but most sites don't do that. It's like, well, yeah, I know most sites don't. You'd have to have a generic thing, just like pin tabs has a generic icon that comes up that if, you know, it tries to make its best guess, it uses the letter of the website and then a dominant color on the page and it says okay that's your icon now it's it's not perfect but i'm i'm a little surprised that that they don't want to do something other than i mean maybe that's the answer is that even anything in there is considered junky and that there's some purity of the tabs but if you look at the layout of like tabs in safari when you get a lot of tabs safari's 
tab logic is also a little questionable. Like the Chrome tabs are much more kind of evenly spaced and logical. And when Safari gets a lot of tabs, everything gets weird and mashed up and not great. And I think part of that is because they don't have fav icons because what Safari does, what what Chrome tries to do is actually very simple. And it tries to keep all all tabs the same width and just keeps making them smaller and smaller. And then as they get to this point where you can't read text, just center them, center them on the fav icon. Um, what Safari does is keeps the ones that are leftmost, and it depends on the size of your screen, but let's say like the leftmost 10 tabs, I don't know, just a basic number, uh, equidistant or equisized. And it, it's a size that's big enough that you can see at least the first few words of the title of the page. And then any additional tabs are on the left and are really, really small to the point where you literally, you know, they're, they're only a few pixels wide. And it's right. just and then sorta, you have to scroll. You, have, yeah, you basically yeah. have to swipe left right. or right in order to move through right. the tab bar. Uh, and I think that they are kind of forced to do that because if they don't have fav icons, the minimum usable width is a couple of words of text. Whereas, so I think Safari does a better job with lots and lots. Like if you're the type of person who has 40 tabs in a window, I think the Safari design is better in Hmm. that way. And insofar as that, I think Chrome does something ridiculous with that where they have all 40 tabs and you only see a fraction of the fav icon. Like I think that the, 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 to me, I think the ideal design would be something in between where they shrink to about, you know, a generous size that would accommodate the fav icon and only the fav icon. But then after a certain point, even Chrome, I think should, you know, start making them really tiny off the left so that there's only, you know, only so many on screen. Um, what else was I going to say about that? I had another point, but I, I, I think I've forgotten it. Anyway, I think, I think they should do it. Oh, I know what it was. Right. It was it was people who said uh, people who wrote in and said you shouldn't have nobody should have that many tabs open. You should. <laughs> I, I swear to God, I got a couple of emails like this that that this you know Safari's design is better because it 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 prompts you not to have too many tabs open. And I kind of get that. I do in some ways user interface design should sort of encourage good behavior, but it, it, you know, that's, that's too prescriptive. It, it's, it's, you know, it's more important for UI to accommodate what people actually do rather than to uh, be designed for an ideal use case scenario. Yeah. The fact is people, there are people, not all people, but there are people who are very tab dominated. And even if you don't think that they should be, they are, that's just how it is. It's, it reminds me of, um, in, in web design, there was always this idea of search-dominant users and nav-dominant users where, like, you can build the most beautiful nav bar at the top of your website, but the fact is some percentage of your users are just looking for a box to type yeah. words in and search. And yeah. there's nothing... You can say, no, 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 you're going to get bad results. The best thing, you're interested in sports, you should click yeah. on sports and you'll get the best headlines. And they don't care. Like, that's just... And, and so at that point, as a good um, UX person, you have to say, I need to make my search experience better because they're going to use it. I can't stop them. So it better be good. Yeah, exactly. You have to be realistic and, and, and design for how people behave, not how people should behave. Um, Like secondarily would be steering them towards the better behavior, but primarily you have to, your first obligation is to, to design for how people use 
use it. And the truth is there's an awful lot of people who use their browser in a way that tabs aren't usable unless they have five icons. End of story. <laughs> All right, let's go uh, speed zone through the next three topics. Project Titan, New York Times had a story yesterday by Daisuke Wasabai. Uh, forget it. Wakabayashi. Wakabayashi. Uh, with an update on Apple's Project Titan, which is their car project, which sort of was coming from the angle of Apple had these bold uh, bold plans to make a car, and now they've scaled it back, and now they're just making self-driving autonomous software. Uh, and and the, the maybe the technology, you know, the, the sensors and stuff for that. Um, but also had the intriguing tidbit that they're seemingly on the cusp of launching a shuttle that will just rotate between their Bay Area campuses, like between the new campus and Infinite Loop and maybe a few other stops in Palo Alto area where they have office buildings. Which And these, these shuttles will be self-driving and autonomous and they'll be on the road. And that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I heard something about how um, in the, the separate uh, Fufara about Apple building a campus in a suburb where there's not a lot of public transport access and whether that's good or bad versus Amazon building in downtown Seattle and and uh, you know lots of different perspectives there. I have some opinions, but I also think there's some reasonable opinions across the spectrum. What I hadn't really thought was, well, one of the ways that you get public transportation use up is have your build your own public transportation system, and this felt a little bit like that, like. You know, if if you have autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles, not just those Apple buses that are coming from San Francisco to take people to Cupertino, but like moving uh, between different campuses and also moving to different like train stations and things like that. I hadn't really thought about that, but that would be a very interesting application of this technology that would give Apple a lot of data on a very limited set of streets, right, where they could get really great data uh, about the streets yeah. in these small cities in the South Bay and do it there on those on that finite number of uh, of roads. So it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and and the uh, the article states that there were there were sort of two mindsets within Apple at the outset of this, and one was to have sort of a regular car with self driving autonomous features, more of a traditional car, you know, with a self you know regular driving steering wheel and stuff, uh, and then a a a more ambitious vision that apparently, according to the article, was was endorsed by Johnny Ive to totally reinvent the car and go fully autonomous only. Um, and so then there's sort of a negative, to me, there was a very negative slant to the article in terms of it being, like I said, like the gist of it seemed to be Apple had ambitious plans and now they've scaled back and are just building this autonomous system. Whereas I think a a more interesting way to read this article, just the facts in the article, is that it's actually their plans are actually it, it. The more ambitious plan seems to be the one they're pursuing. Like it seems like what they abandoned was the let's just make like a you know sort of like a Tesla with the autopilot, and that the fully autonomous car, which obviously would take years longer to hit the road, it still seems to me what they're building towards. Like I don't think the idea that they're going to produce their own car hardware, you know. <laughs> It sounds funny to call it car hardware, but, you know, to actually make the cars, I don't think that's off the table at all. And in fact, I I can't imagine, I know a lot of people seemingly in a couple of podcasts I've listened to over, you know, the last year or so, as this whole Bob Mansfield, you know, reboot of Project Titan, and they're just building the autonomous system. I, I just can't fathom that if they're successful and build a 
autonomous driving system that they would license it to existing car makers. That's just not Apple. Right. That that would be, I would find that shocking. I really would. I, I don't even think it's on the, I, I, again, I have no inside information on this, like strategic information like that just exists only at the highest levels and doesn't leak. I, I just think that, I don't even think it was even discussed. I'd, I'd be shocked if that was actually, you know, like, you know, we can go to Ford or BMW or somebody and license the Apple self-driving technology. I think if they get to that point, they're making a car. Yeah, I think um, I read the that section of this article as being more about. It actually reminded me of like old bad Apple back when they would come up with these amazing things that would never be a product, and I felt like the way I read it was that Mansfield was applying some focus yes. to a project that ha- that lacked focus because the fact is. If you say, hey, we have uh, maybe an unlimited budget, we have this incredibly rich company, it's got so much cash, let's reinvent the car. And then what they end up doing is is like, let's let's design a door and let's design an interior without a steering wheel or gas pedals and let's investigate whether we can literally, not a metaphor, reinvent the wheel by using a spherical wheel mm-hmm. instead of a traditional uh, you know, radial uh, car wheel. And... I read that as being like Bob Mansfield came in and said, okay, stop. What The core of what we're going to do is autonomous driving. Everything else is a distraction. Let's get this right. And then if we get this right, we'll put it in a car. Right. Let's uh, not reinvent the entire well, let's car. Let's see what we'll do. You know, if we get this right, let's yeah. see what we'll do. And, and it reminds me a lot. I'm not the first person. I'm probably the thousandth person to, to make this direct analogy. But it sounds exactly like what Apple did with touchscreen technology, where Apple was working, had people working on touchscreen technology for, uh, I think, 10 years before the iPhone came out. Uh and not specifically, you know, famously, you know, the basic thought was, well, some kind of tablet type thing. Uh, so it wasn't even a phone project, but, it, you know, it, it, rather than bite off, like, let's create the iPad from scratch, it was let's just see what we can do with touchscreens and then right. see what we can do from there. And I think you're exactly right that it's that Mansfield's focus is let's make a working autonomous system and then see what we can do from there as opposed to. Yeah, right. You know, it looks like designers and it, the, the article suggests Jonathan Ive himself, right, is very much into, oh, we could completely reimagine the car. And then at some point it's like, well, let's stop, stop. Let's go back to what we're really good at and get really good at that and see where it leads us rather than trying to reinvent every single aspect of this yeah. car. I also think there was a... Um, we we talked about this on Upgrade a while ago, and then somebody pointed me to an episode of a podcast that's about, basically it's about Tesla, but it was, it was, that episode was about the Apple car. And one of the things that they suggested that I thought was really brilliant, and it really changed my mind about where Apple might go to this, is the concept that Apple might not sell a car. Apple might, in the long run, be thinking about doing a car service. And the idea there is you sign up as a member of this car service, and when you need a ride, you call and an autonomous car comes. But the cars are all owned by Apple, and they're maintained by Apple. And so Apple doesn't need dealerships. Apple doesn't yeah. need to sell a car. Apple just creates Apple the Apple car service of self-driving cars, which is where Uber is going too. And what I like about that idea is that I have a hard time seeing, one, Apple licensing, as you said, this technology to just regular old car makers. Oh, our car comes with Apple. Way, yay, nobody cares. Um, And I also can't see 
Apple really like buying a car maker or maybe mm. making the, the closest I could come is like making a strategic investment in a car maker and having them build their car for them. But even then, like, are they going to sell it? Is Apple going to sell it? Is Apple going to build a, a network of, of showrooms? It, it, but if it's a service and nobody ever buys an Apple car, then At that moment, I thought, oh, I could see that. I could see Apple doing that because you can roll it out in specific regions and specific cities. You can do a slow rollout and learn as you go and build. And at no point do you have to support and maintain somebody's purchased vehicle because it's a fleet and they all belong to you. And you don't know what car is going to get you uh, when you press the button. You just know that a car is going to come pick you up and pick your kid up and take them to school or wherever. And it's going to be an Apple car and it's going to be nice and it's going to integrate with, you know, as soon as you get in, it'll pick up something from your iPhone and it'll have your music and, you know. Exactly. Right. I could see that. That makes more sense to me. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I still think, and the other thing that was interesting about the article is the article uh, uh, definitely, you know, definitively said that, yes, they let go of some hardware people at on the, the Bob Mansfield reboot, but they've hired back a lot of people. So it's still a big project. That's the, that's the thing I take away from it, is that however big you thought Project Titan was before, it is still a very large initiative within the company, which to me is very exciting. Yeah, I agree. Because there's something there, right? I mean, cars in what I've always been saying about cars since this first rumor happened was cars in 20 years are not going to be anything like cars of now or or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Like we are on the cusp of some pretty dramatic changes with the computer technology, with electric drivetrains. Cars are going to change the the run of the classic like automobile for a century plus. I think is coming to an end to be replaced with something that's different. <laughs> we're going to have a good time telling our grandchildren about what cars are like. You, <laughs> had, to, you, <laughs> had, to, you had to put gas in them and you had to drive them yourself and you, oh, and you bought one for for like $30,000, $50,000. It's huge amounts of money more 40, than you'd spend. You had to take out a loan in order to get them. 40 to, 40 <sighs> to 50,000 people a year died on the roads in car accidents in the United States yeah. alone every year. And we people just... would just fall asleep at the wheel and the car would crash. Can you believe that? Because that doesn't happen anymore, right? The, now that the computers drive, do all the driving and you owned, I mean, I really do believe it could be you owned a car. Right. And, and you know, can you believe those days when you owned a car? And well, what, what did it do when you right. weren't driving it? It just sat in a parking lot or a garage somewhere and didn't do anything. Well, that right. sounds crazy and wasteful. Wouldn't, yes. Wouldn't you get bored while driving and want to look at other things and devices? And it's like, oh yeah, people did that. And then they would just drive right in, <laughs> drive right yeah, into that's those, cars. Fa- those fatalities we were talking about earlier. That's where they came from. Yeah. Oh yeah, people got bored yeah, and so looked at their. We used to call them phones. People used to. Yeah. People used sure. to look at their phones before they were right in your eye. Then uh, they. Yeah. And, and so if I'm Apple and I've got this is my standard line on this is like if I'm Apple and I've got billions of dollars in cash, right. and I know that this industry is going to change, and I know that technology is going to drive it. Why would I? That is such an easy bet to make. And it doesn't mean it's a sure thing. And it doesn't mean it's easy to do it. But like if I'm Apple and I'm in the position Apple is with the money that it's got and the resources that it has, you would be, I would say that like as a stockholder, if I was a stockholder, which I'm not, I would be like, you have a responsibility to take a shot at the car market because it's right, it may be right up your alley and it could completely change. So now's the time to get into it. So I think it's great that they're doing it no matter what happens. And I think that it's a very good bet that however the 
the, the car world looks in 20 years or, you know, 30 years, you know, whatever, uh, it, in large parts of the world, and especially in the United States, there's, there's a need for something like a car, a, a vehicle that goes on roads because it's just, the country is too sparse and big. And, and for someone like yeah. me who lives in a, in a, in a middle of a big city, I, I can see cars getting off the roads in big cities. I, I can imagine that future very easily and being replaced by other things. Um, but for, you know, it, in general, will there be things like cars on the road and a need for them? Absolutely. And, it, you know, Bay Area is a perfect example. Like, I just can't imagine how the Bay Area isn't going to have cars. It's just, it, it's. Yeah. And, and if they're efficient, I mean, then you're using freeway space to right. move people around oh, and when, it's already there when you watch for the a lot cheaper than building new trains. When you watch the computer simulations of what self-driving cars, how efficient they could be on a freeway, it's remarkable. It could turn the entire freeway yeah. into, into effectively a, a, you know, a train like density of, of people. Anyway, uh, it's, yeah. it's, I came away from this article being excited for Project Titan, uh, not despondent. Uh, one last quick one before I take the last break uh, is iMessage is an unheralded social networking Goliath. There was an article I, <laughs> I linked to on Daring Fireball uh, making the case that iMessage is is hu- is the number one social platform for teenagers in the United States. And yes, it's stronger among teenagers. Uh, and yes, it is a U.S. centric thing. And around the world, like especially in Asia, there are other independent services that are cross platform, uh, like. Uh, like your WeChat and your WhatsApp and what have you that are more popular. And iMessage isn't really even relevant in some of those countries. But here in the U.S., iMessage is super, super uh, dominant. And I've been banging this drum for a while that it is completely and utterly overlooked by most of the business and tech press as as a, a huge social networking win for Apple. Uh, curious, your kids, are they on iMessage? Yeah, so... Um my son doesn't use his phone a lot, but when he does, he is sending iMessages to his friends. That's absolutely the case. I'm on his iPad, too. My daughter, Snapchat is the number one. Snapchat hmm. still has it. She does She does use iMessage, but it's. Um, I think it's more utilitarian mm-hmm. when she uses iMessage. Like, literally, I need to send you a text right now. But for all of the more social, fun, conversational stuff, it's basically all Snapchat. Yeah, uh, Giuseppe Stuto is the guy who wrote this article. I'll, I'll try to remember to put an article, put a link in the show notes. Uh, I, it's super strong among my friends. Uh, my friend, my son's thirteen, and, and again, he's you know, uh, it's probably extraordinarily different, especially at that age among boys and girls. But uh, you know, like when his friends are coordinating, like a hey, let's all get on PlayStation and play a certain game. The coordination all takes place on iMessage. Yes. Yes, that's true with my son's friends, too. A little less with my daughter, although, again, that's the utilitarian part, which I think gets mixed up in this story a little bit, I suspect, just as having observed a 15- and a 13-year-old at close range, that I think iMessage is calling it, like, it feels a little less social. It is a little social, but, like, for my daughter, the really fun social is split off into into, uh, into Snapchat. But... Mm-hmm. You know, it, they they do both use it the same way we use it, which is to say, yeah, we're going to play this video game. Let's get on, uh, yeah. you know, let's get on and play Overwatch or whatever. And my son and his friends do that all the time. Yeah. So I actually feel bad and, and I actually acknowledge. And again, this is, this, you know, 
the way people do behave and the way people should behave. I, I, I agree that in, in an ideal world, the, the de facto messaging platform would be universal and cross-platform, you know, the way email is, the way SMS is. I mean, SMS sucks in a bunch of ways, but at least it didn't matter if you were on Verizon or AT&T, you could still text each other. And so I, I, I actually think it in a way, I, I, I don't say this as like, you know, wow, this is great for the world. It's good for Apple. But I think it sucks that a kid who, you know, and I think an awful lot of kids get like a hand-me-down phone. And if, you know, if your dad's last phone was an Android and that's the phone you get, uh, I think it sucks that you're out of your group chat the group chats of your friends that are on iMessage. I think that sucks. I mean, I'm not saying that Apple is morally obligated to do iMessage for Android. Uh, and I totally understand the strategic value of keeping it a competitive advantage. And if there is some sort of peer pressure to get iPhones because your friends are using group chats on it, but it just as a dad who remembers what it was like to feel left out certain times as a teenager, I think that sucks. Right. It's, you know, but it's the way it is. And I think to deny that it's a huge factor in U.S. teen culture today is you're, you're, you're just being willfully ignorant. Yeah. And it's probably used as a tool to ostracize people who yeah, don't have iPhones. Of course. Right? right. If we're being honest about the way teenagers work. Right. Mm hmm. Like just search Google or Twitter someday. Just pause the podcast and go search for green bubbles and you'll find adults. <laughs> you'll find adults complaining about how gross it is to text somebody from their iPhone and see green bubbles. It's, you know, it is a thing. Anyway, I will take a break right here and thank our fourth and final sponsor uh, of this episode. And it is our good friends at Fracture. Fracture is the photo decor company that is out to rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. Don't let your photos just, I mean, post them to Instagram, sure. But that's, you know, it scrolls away and then nobody comes back to them, right? That's that's not how you keep mementos. Uh, take your best photos, find your best photos a couple times a year and go to Fracture and get them printed directly on glass. It's the most amazing thing. I know they're a frequent sponsor of the show too. I, you've probably heard me talk about them before, but if you don't have one, I, I, words are, it's difficult for me to find words to really describe how amazing a fracture print is compared to a traditional print that's on paper and then put in a frame behind glass. Like printing the photo on glass really is like, it's even more to me striking, but similar to the difference from when iPhones switched from being an LCD screen behind a piece of glass to being, you know, with an air gap to being fused directly onto the glass with the iPhone 4. Uh, and, 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 you know, you tilt the viewing angle and it looks like it's right there on the surface. I, I, it's amazing. Uh, what a great product and what a great gift idea. It's such a great gift idea for anybody in your family uh, to just print some photos of your kids or whatever, your dog, and and give them out. Everybody loves to get one of these. Uh, they are each one is handmade in Gainesville, Florida, from U.S. source materials, and uh, it, the thing comes with everything you need to hang it up on the wall or prop it up on your desk. Really, it's just one of my favorite companies and my favorite products in the world. And I don't know anybody else who does anything like this. I don't even know. Uh, I don't even know if they have any competition. Really, it's it's just a remarkably unique company with a terrific product. You can get more information and save ten percent off your first order by going to fractureme.com/podcast. Yes, that's actually the URL: fractureme.com/podcast. And then uh, you can mention the talk show 
in their one question survey at the end when you place an order. And that one question is, where'd you hear about Fracture? Uh, so my thanks to Fracture. All right, we're running long. I, I have a few things I want to talk about, though. Uh, okay. You you recently, I just linked to it today, actually, but you posted from a, you went on an 11-day road trip with your family. Uh, and I did? I, your notes from the road trip crystallized, like, some vague thoughts that have been running in my head as to how how things are are changing. Uh, one of them was a segment, and that's the part I quoted, was Wi-Fi versus cellular, and that, you know, you guys stayed in a couple of houses, rental houses and hotels, and that some of the houses had advertised, hey, we've got Wi-Fi in the house, and that sounds great, and then you got there, and, like, the one, the one was backed by DSL. Like, I remember when DSL first yeah. came out, and DSL going from a modem to DSL was like, wow, this is like real internet. And <laughs> DSL now feels like it's closer to like modem speed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was like DSL was the days when like it was, it you know, it was like cool that you could download music over the internet. Like video, no, you can't download video, let alone stream it. <laughs> uh, like, you, you know, you look back, it makes you look back and, you know, we talk about the 15 year anniversary of daring fireball like 15 years ago the idea that you could download high quality hd video fast enough to watch it as <laughs> as it comes <laughs> was ridiculous uh and so like you said like on your trip like you guys burned through a big chunk of your monthly cellular allotment that's exactly what happens to us whenever we travel now for the exact same reason yeah and it would it was rough because we're, I mean, it was good. We're on one of the new AT&T plans now where they, where they, um, when you hit your limit and it's a much higher limit than it used to be, but we hit it and the, they don't, um, they don't just charge you $15 for another little block, which we would have gone through like $75 if that had happened, a hundred dollars. The problem is that it, it, um, limits your speed per mm. device to like 128 K. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, and that was brutal. That was really brutal. It kind of worked, but it was really, it was really awful. And what, what, I, what frustrated me is, for the vacation, what I wanted to do was, was call up AT and T and say, "Can I give you fifty dollars right. just to be unlimited this month, and then we'll go back to our plan?" But they kind of don't want to do that. So I just kind of, uh, and if they do, somebody let me know. But I, I found that they don't make that easy at the very least in, in, in doing it that way. The, I, so we the iPad makes that possible. Like if you have an iPad cellular plan, you can burn through it and oh, then just, yeah. just renew, you know, like, so Amy did that. Amy's a huge, huge iPad user and she's on AT&T on their iPad, on her iPad. And in the midst of traveling and again, in a rental house earlier, this, it was exactly the same situation. You know, the Wi-Fi was just, it, it literally just went out randomly, you know, like it was slow yeah. when it was on and it went out. And so she just used cellular and burned through her month, you know, I don't know, in a week and a half and, and just paid another 50 bucks to get another month, you know, and all of a sudden, yeah, if, I, if I had to schedule. do it all over again, I would have, I would have brought my T-Mobile SIM with me and popped that into my iPad and just bought a pass right. for, you know, for the month with a lot more data and just said, okay, we're using, you know, we're using this now because that's what happened is in the DSL place, which also had the spotty Wi-Fi, I would just have to unplug and replug the router. The yeah. DSL router that had Wi-Fi every so often because it just stopped working yeah. until I unplugged and replugged. Um, and there I was using I was using cellular and we we all were and that was great. Except that then we got to by the time we got to Salt Lake City we were over our cap and it yeah. was over. And the the hotel we stayed in was surprisingly not all hotels are good, but that the, the hotel we stayed in had good internet. It was really nice. Yeah. But then we went to another rental and it was the same deal. They had cable internet, but um, 
it was it was spotty, but it was better than than what we had before, and we were out of cellular data. Yeah. So, oh well. Uh, you mentioned long cables. I uh, packing keeping like a six foot six two six foot cables in your like travel bag is such a key kip because it's amazing how many times you end up in a hotel room where like. You know, oh yeah, there's a there's a socket right next to this side of the bed, and in the other side of the bed, there's <laughs> there's nothing anywhere. Yep. Uh, yeah, and the, the the long cables also comes. I mean, I bought them originally because my kids kept destroying lightning cables. Yeah. And I discovered that my daughter was like holding her phone at completely taut while plugged mm-hmm. into the wall because of where the cable was and where the plug was, and. I, so I, I I said, and my son did something similar with his iPad, and I was like, all right, here we go. These are nylon braided, six foot long, you know, use these. And it's been better, I would say. I think they still will probably destroy them, but it would take them longer. And it has this added benefit of in the car – our, our power plug is on the dash right. and I've got one of those dual USB things, but to get to the kids in the back seat, and, it's, it's too far. But and with not the six have, foot ones, not have the people in the front seat have a cord right by their neck. Right, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Just, just ready, ready to snag right. you and knock you down. So, yeah. um, that, so that worked great because they, I said, everybody bring your long cables and we plugged them in and that was great. And then the other thing that blew me away is we made a, we made a stop in, uh, in Nevada, out in the middle of nowhere, at a at a at a Flying J truck stop, I believe is what it was, or maybe it's a pilot, but it was a truck stop on I eighty in middle of nowhere, Nevada, somewhere uh, maybe Elko. I think it was. Bef- I don't think it was as big as Elko. I think it was somewhere between Winnemucca and Elko. If anybody who's driven that, there's nothing out there. Um, hi, we love Nevada, but but parts of Nevada are very barren. And we get to the truck stop, and you know, I fill up fill up the the car, and everybody takes a bathroom break, and um, and since everybody else was doing that while I was filling up the car, everybody's getting in the car and I say, okay, I'll be right back. I go, I go in there and we got my son a Nintendo switch for his birthday, uh, which was on this trip, except that the Nintendo, because it's Nintendo, the power plug um, that comes with it is USB-C, um, but it doesn't detach. It's just a plug on one set, side and a USB-C plug on the other. So you can't use it in a car. And I, I come out of the bathroom and I'm staring and they have two, like two giant, displays like on a wall of cords and so many of them first off are lightning which really i i think the mind share of apple products is so dramatic like 80 percent of the cords were lightning cords right which is bizarre because everybody keeps saying that even in the u.s iphone is like 20 percent market share or something like that you know it's it is i i know exactly what you're talking about and it's like how can this be it's it's very strange it doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, they did have mini and micro USB, and they had USB C. So if you're somebody who's got an Android phone and you want to plug it in, you can do that. And and I was amazed because I was looking for a USB C to USB A cord um, for the Nintendo Switch, so my son could keep playing it while we were driving. And not only did I find one, I found a six foot nylon braided <laughs> USB C to USB A cord. So I came out of the of the truck stop convenience store and just handed my son the box and said here you go now you can play yeah. you can, even though his battery was dead now you can play and i think he couldn't i think you could play but not charge because there's weird power things about nintendo yeah. um stuff which i think is why it comes with a plug but it just yeah. was a funny moment that we're out in the middle of nowhere and not only is there a wall of cable adapters in this truck stop right next to the slurpee machine or the uh, whatever the icy machine and the, next to the racks of beef jerky and everything else you find in a and and slot machines because it's nevada uh, and then there's <laughs> These, and all these cords, most of them lightning. 
I bought a cord at the beginning of the summer, and I'm so glad I did, is, is I've got a couple of micro USB things to charge, most important of which to me is the like a portable battery charger, something I can put in my pocket yeah. and charge stuff. Yep. But they always charge from micro USB. Uh, but I always have, yeah. my, I have my Kindle in the backpack, and there's just, you know, there's a couple of things. And so I hate having the two cables. I got this thing from Belkin. It was ungodly expensive. I think it was like $30, might have been more, but it's six feet long, and... It's a lightning cable with, at the end of the lightning cable, there's a little like a uh, cap that you put over. It's a female lightning port that has micro USB out. Oh yeah. So you can't lose it because it's attached. And so if you pop it on, it's micro, or I think if it's, if you pop it on, it's, it's lightning. Yeah. With it, with it on, it's lightning and you take it off and it's micro USB. And so you can have one cable that can charge both. And it is so great. Um, I, I, it's one of my favorite additions to my backpack in a long time. But the downside—I had of that, one of those and it died in like two months, and I just well, gave up and I said, "All right, this isn't for me." It didn't, maybe, it didn't last because I loved it when I had it. Yeah. Well, so far so good with mine. Um, but the downside to it is that now I still—it's I, I, only—it hasn't really gotten me from two cables to one because now I need a USB-C cable too because I've got enough USB-C things <laughs> like the switch yeah. that. Like the, the complete eradication of micro USB cannot come soon enough. I still have, I had to bring a mini USB with me too, because my, um, <laughs> I brought my portable audio recorder to do a, one podcast from the road. I only did one podcast while I was gone. It was about the solar eclipse, which was why we took yeah. the trip. So it was, it was a good reason to bring it. But that one, if you don't run it off of battery, it's micro USB. So I had to have a micro USB yeah. and a mini USB for the Kindles and yeah. a USB-C, it turns out, for the Switch, plus lightning, which is, it's ridiculous. I, this is why USB-C needs to be a thing, because all this other stuff needs to go away. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so that leads us to the solar, solar eclipse. So that you guys took a family road trip up to Idaho? Where'd you go? Idaho. Yeah, and, we went and, to Idaho. And you got the full total solar eclipse. I didn't even think about it. I, I honestly... It, it, just it never really occurred to me and now reading your stuff and reading jason kotke's posts about seeing it it seems like i was a kind of a fool not to at least think about driving to tennessee or something from here it i got good news for you there's um there's another one in 2024 and it will pass through uh, Western Pennsylvania and Buffalo, New York, yeah, and other that. places not too far away from you. Yeah, so and, and it'll be a little, little closer if, for you, further for me. And if we want to travel, Austin, Texas, which is a beautiful town. Oh, yeah. yeah. You I can think, go to Mazatlan, Mexico, yeah. too. If you really want to do it right, you can go there. They'll have it, too. All right. Speed zone, because I'm, I'm really running out of time here. Uh, Letterman's going to have a Netflix series. Yay. I, 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 you know, and he cited to, in some interview he did, he cited Jerry Seinfeld's thing and even said, like, I wish I could just do Jerry Seinfeld's thing. And when he retired, that's what I thought is he's going to do a Seinfeld thing, yeah. something that that is exactly what he wants and only as much as he wants. Right. Yeah. And then no more. And I'm so happy because I was really worried that he was going to be like Johnny Carson and uh, just go away and never do anything. And uh, did you see his ne National Geographic thing that he did? Yes. where He went to India. Yeah, it was remarkable. It was it was. It was pretty good, right? So I, I and I kept thinking, you know, this is the thing is, you know, find some people to produce it for him. He knows what he's going to want to do, and they and and they and so in this case, he's going to get six episodes, I guess, next year on Netflix to do this, and we'll see where it goes from there. But I think it's great to have him, and also I think it's 
I mean, his joke that hey, we, you gonna, and I both quoted, which is, which is, uh, you know, ask your family before you retire to spend more time with your family. <laughs> so here's a question for you. Do you think he keeps the beard or not? I think so. I think I saw him in an interview say, like, I, I never, you know, I'm tired. I'm done with shaving regularly. Yep. So I think, plus, if you think about it, he's probably going to record this in an unusual way over yeah. a longer stretch of time. Having, like, beard... Like, I mean, maybe there's a beard continuity issue, but I think like keeping it just as the bushy beard and it's just bushy beard Letterman. I think that's his thing now. I it's think like, he's just going to be beard El right, Beardo. That, that's like what post post talk show Letterman looks like. Yeah. Um. But hooray! Yeah, basically, yay is the is the answer for for you and me both. To just more more of him, you know, talking to people he wants to talk to and doing. It sounds like also like doing some maybe man on the street stuff again which is very interesting to me like he he seems to have an idea for what he wants to do and so uh, yeah i can't wait yeah i can't wait either i think it's going to be great uh and i think it'll be interesting to see him he see him play in the netflix area where he doesn't need to worry about commercial breaks because he's always been a master of form and i think he could do something interesting with that yeah uh and then last but not least on my list, at least, is, uh, and again, sort of related, as a fellow talk show geek, uh, Jerry Lewis died a couple days ago. And I want to throw in here, you know, like when we do uh, audible reads and throw in like a recommendation of a book, I want to throw in a recommendation for a movie to watch, which is uh, Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, um, which by talking about the basic plot doesn't really spoil anything, but it's the gist of it is that Jerry Lewis plays a very Johnny Carson esque late night talk show host who lives in New York, who who gets kidnapped by a character played by Robert De Niro, who's a very hard to describe, sort of a a kook who wants to be a comedian, uh, and it is a very the, – the vibe of the movie is very hard to explain because there's moments when you're watching it where you're thinking it's devolving into farce. But it never – it never leaves a sort of realistic take. It's and, – and it was a commercial failure when it came out in 1983. But it's, it's one of those movies that, that has become like a cult favorite Um and Jerry Lewis is just amazing in it. I'm presuming here that you've seen it. I haven't seen it since I was in, in like high school, I, so I I have basically no memories other than like the broad outlines of it. I should probably revisit it since I like most of Scorsese's work, especially from this period. I Jeez. haven't watched it recently, um, but, so I'm looking forward to it. Like it's you know, and it's you know, it's a shame that it takes a guy dying for me to think I should watch. <laughs> watch a movies and uh but i've watched it recently enough that i it what's i always i thought i remember the first time i saw it i thought this is a, this is a fun movie how come nobody you know knows about this movie but watching it like semi recently like i don't know maybe like 10 years ago is is it's absolutely astounding how comfortable and like to be that Johnny Carson-esque character, like part of what made Carson Carson was that it, it was like a well-worn shoe for our culture. You know, like your favorite pair of slippers. It's just like every night when his show came on it, or, or whenever Carson would appear anywhere, like if he hosted the Oscars or whatever, it's like, ah, there's Johnny Carson. And you knew exactly what he was and who he was. It, it's just remarkable how Jerry Lewis... It, it, it feels like he had, you know, somehow it felt like I was totally comfortable with the fact that he was a guy who was on TV for an hour a night every night for the last 20 years, even though he, you know, wasn't. 
It, it's and you could almost see how in, in another world Jerry Lewis, the real Jerry Lewis, might have been like a host of the Tonight Show or something like that. It's it's really weird casting and I think brilliant casting in the way of like you need somebody who feels like they are this iconic larger than life figure and Jerry Lewis fit the bill right even though he wasn't a talk show host it was close enough that uh, that was a great pick like because if it was somebody random then it wouldn't have the same impact. It's right. like how, you know, Gary Shandling doing Larry Sanders, I mean, he he guest hosted The Tonight Show for many, many years, and it was a it was a close enough fit that it made sense in a way that right. some random casting would not have worked. Right. It's exactly it, is, is there's a rare sort of on-screen personality that is uh, believable as a nightly talk show host. And somehow Jerry Lewis totally pulled it off, even though in real life, he was really the opposite, which is like the consummate talk show guest to come out and be manic and crazy as the guest in front of the straight man host. And then he could just turn that inside out and play the host. And it's, it's really a great movie. I I highly recommend it. That's my pick of the week for, for those of you out there. All right. Um, Anything else, Jason? I don't think so. Boy, if there's... We didn't talk about sports, let's not. But we'll save that for the next time. Save it for next season for you. Oh, at least. Uh, Anyway, everybody can find Jason's fine work at uh, uh, sixcolors.com. Is that right? I just just know... I just get to the S-I-X and it fills in. Uh, yeah. And you could spell. I wanted a dot com. It had to be a dot com. I and wasn't going to settle for less. Those of you on the other side of the pond can spell colors any any way you wish, and it'll still work. Uh, your podcast, you can find them uh, a bunch of them at the Incomparable uh, Upgrade is over there with the the great Mike Hurley uh, at Real at Relay FM. Yeah, Relay FM. Uh, and that, what else is there? There, there are many, I mean, basically Six Colors will get you my writing and theincomparable.com will get you my pop culture podcasting and, and Relay FM will get you my, my tech podcasting along with space and, and some other stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's all great. And uh, I really appreciate it. I mean, you and Mike have been doing a great job this summer. I've been, it's one of my favorite shows. It really is. Um, Thank you. It's a, it's a lot of fun to do. It's, it's weird. You and I have had this conversation. It's weird to think that we're uh, as much podcasters as writers in yeah. our careers, yeah, but yeah. Uh, upgrade, upgrade is, uh, is a lot of fun. And that is sort of the, I'd say that's the, uh, the incomparable upgrade and, and, uh, and six colors are the things that I do if I was telling somebody what I do. So I'm glad you like it. Yeah. And it's, you know, not to start a whole nother segment here, but it, I, I like listening to Mike and I like listening to, uh, to CGB Gray too. I really like listening to the iPad enthusiasts, the people who really love the iPad. This is what a what a summer it's been to hear them think about where iOS right. 11 is going because it's been so great. And I love it because I'm not, you know, I'm I'm, I'm I appreciate the iPad and I like it, but I'm so staunchly stuck on the Mac mentally. Well, you know, I was blown away by your it, thing from the road yeah. trip, right? <laughs> that that I didn't take a Mac with me for eleven days out on the road. That was a, uh, I I made that decision, and I noticed that your note on Daring Fireball was gives gives you the heebie-jeebies to even think about it. I, just, I would just feel like I was walking around with that like like that nightmare you have where you forgot to put your pants on before you went to school. That's how mm-hmm. I would feel every moment of the day. I'd be like, oh my god, what, what if I need a Mac? 
Yep. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's been great listening to 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 your show over the summer. It's you know great times to be to be talking to someone with an iPad uh, enthusiasm. Uh, my thanks to you. What a great, uh, how generous you are with your time. I, I, my, by my clock, we've been on for four hours. Yeah. It's a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's metric time. 